also this is such a reviewing this now is such an interesting jumping off point even leading from you guys's last tiff conversation i mean yeah. i think this is so interesting to see where filmmaking was the practicality of it we're obviously going to get into it but also like the type of things we're missing now and it's yeah. super interesting to to seeing like a film like this so concise and so uh, how much it's able to tell and how much we're not having that type of cinema anymore Anyhow, also, that's just... my, yeah my main reaction i'd never seen this movie before oh, before doing the podcast and let's we'll let we'll martin do the intro and we'll get into the yeah, episode yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay it's, I was just going to build on what Tony smoke. was saying. It's the old pink smoke where we have an hour before conversation <laughs> <laughs> that nobody ever gets to hear. Yeah. All right, All let's right. get into it. Yeah. Hello, you're listening to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm uh, everybody's favorite Ulan, Martin Kessler. And joining me is special guest, homo sapien, Tony Stella. Hello, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Atta, that's not Atta. all. <laughs> uh, we also have uh, Pink Smoke founders, uh, Watch What He Eats, Kazam, John Cribs. Thank you for joining us. Definitely don't. <laughs> and of course, uh, the terrifying Wagaboo, Christopher Funderburg. Hi. Hi, Martin. Hi, Hi. Tony. Hi, Hi John Cribs. I'm probably going to leave in that intro, that conversation that we were just having too. <laughs> so it's going to sound doubly phony, all of my hellos <laughs> just now. Yeah, it's so interesting because we I feel we always do this like an hour pre-intro talk <laughs> and we're all taking our uh, sort of... Uh, uh, collective state of mind in the world that we're facing now and social media and all the complications of modern day digital living. I feel that's such a uh, uh, um, uh, such an interesting film to review in that light. But I also I just want to qu quickly give the preamble of sort of the making of, of this podcast, because I think this is one of the earliest uh, uh, topics Martin and I connected on over, over on Twitter because th there was one of those questions that I hate where it's like what's your favorite movie or whatever but it was one yep. of those which which is which are the films that you think you are the biggest fans of and for me it was like <laughs> Robin and Marion um, uh, Quest for Fire and um, uh, I think it was uh, I think Windwalker and maybe the long riders or something because the joke ended up being like it needs a bear attack and james remar at least some of the categories but the one of the few people that uh answered to that was martin and he said oh that's also one of my favorites so we yes. we, we sort of this is a long time uh making this and I'm, I'm super happy to do it with the full crew here because that not only we could talk about anything but quest for fire is a is a real special one for me 80,000 really years is. in the making this, this yeah. episode. <laughs> it all led up to this. That's when yeah. all our ancestors fought and survived and thrived for. It was all for this. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're talking about Quest for Fire, um, which I'm not sure if people today realize it was a pretty big hit at the time when it came out. It, it did quite well for a film that has... Yeah, I was you know, saying, I, I grew up with this as a, in Europe, at least, the reception was, and it's interesting how it was in Canada and in the States. In Europe, this yeah. was super prestige. Like I was always aware of this film as one of those kind of later new wave filmmaker that, you know, uh, he fits into much more than like say the Godard new wave, but it's mm -hmm. one of the Herzog, Wim Wenders, the international adapt, you know, uh, European new wave sort of. And as that, this was one of the prime sort of uh, examples in Europe where this was yeah high trade, uh, I felt, at least growing up, this was always the reception that I got. How, how was it for, uh, for you guys? 
Uh, I, I was it's really. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I wasn't. This movie was definitely in America a known thing, and my dad. It came out when was like two years old. It came out was very young, but my dad had bought a VHS of it when he came out because he liked it so much. But I wasn't allowed to watch it. That's all I knew about this movie is that you are not allowed to watch this movie, even when I was like 11, you know, like much longer than it should have been. So I never saw it. I actually texted it... Murray last night. It turns out you, you still are not allowed to watch it. Oh, <laughs> shit. Don't let him know. But it was like a known, it was a known thing for sure. Yeah. I don't know if it was super prestige. In my mind, it fits in with like 80s adventure movies because I remember yeah, really. it from my youth. So it is like, in my mind, it's like, it's it's a cousin to Goonies somehow. Like it oh, belongs wow. okay. to, to that kind of stuff. It definitely, I don't, I was probably too young to understand if something was prestige or not, but it was like a big real movie. It wasn't like a curio in any yeah. way, you know? It's funny. And Martin, yeah, there's some Canadian uh, pride, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, uh, especially the scenes that were shot in Ontario, I'm really familiar with, but I saw it around that age of maybe 11 years old, something like that. And it's kind of funny that the stuff that your father probably didn't want you to be aware, like it just kind of went over my head when I was watching yeah. it as a kid. It's like, ah, whatever, you know, kids like you're sort of worried if stuff's going to traumatize them. And usually it's like, ah, they don't get it. Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's not like a thing that really registers with them, but uh... I definitely had some super uncomfortable scenes watching this with my parents where it was like, <laughs> like oh maybe i should duck out of the room but i'm also really banking this in the back of my mind like this is one of the along with black robe which i also think is oh yeah that fits in this type of movie that we're saying a little bit before that i miss a lot this kind black of black robe is john and i's we're the biggest fans of that movie yeah, yeah for movie. sure yeah. and martin and i are definitely <laughs> following right behind there because i mean that's early sexual real like if you ask about scenes that we talk about and i feel this is very connected same with uh uh, uh radon here it's it, it this was like and it, my wife could probably relate to this but this is really baked into my dna of what i thought like awakening of sexuality and in the worst <laughs> ways because they're very similar but i was like i was like mesmerized um by the whole world not just obviously the sex and and stuff and this is probably also the biggest deviation from the book, which we're going to get into. But yeah, I had this as one of my, how do you call it? Uh, it was a book report I made uh, oh. early in school because it was one of those topics. What have you read over the summer? And as usual, I had written nothing. And I found out that uh, Quest for Fire was a book. So I just narrated the movie as I often did. I was just like, you know, and then they <laughs> find this girl and she's from Kenya and stuff, which wasn't in the book, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the teacher wasn't aware. <laughs> he hasn't, she, she, I think she, she drank out of a flask disguised as a little you know, <laughs> uh, uh, thermos. But um, yeah, she, she, she didn't catch on. But it was one of my later discoveries that when I read the book, I was like, oh, wow. Some of these amazing yeah. parts are not even in, in the source material. It's funny. The book, I mean, the book was written, I think, in 1911. It's uh, it's attributed to... Um, Two brothers, right? Uh, it, well, it's it's like J.H. Oh, no, Rosny was their pen name, but I think this was only written by one of them. I think maybe the older one. They, they both would write under that name or sometimes write together. But uh, yeah, it's by like a... I, I think it's just maybe the one who wrote this, but... Yeah, they were like um, early science fiction. They're kind of credited with yeah. like early prehistoric sci-fi, like what do you call it? Uh, science, uh, uh, 
fantasy or something. And it, yeah. I loved the book. I mean, this was part of, I, I, like I said, I discovered it early as sort of young adult fiction and I loved it. And it's tying into a lot of the themes I think we discussed on Dersu Ursula that was always hits me like prehistoric survival. I love that type of stuff. So I read the book quickly, easily. It's a super easy book to read. And it has a, just like the movie, it has such a, I think that's what we're missing a lot. It's such a concise, simple adventure it's got structure. A really clean structure. I think that, yeah. I mean, that's the big takeaway. The film changes a lot because the science partly had changed so much between the time that the book was written and the film was being made. But I think it gives just like a very clean, simple structure for the story to follow that I think works really well. And like for me, um, I remember reading a lot of like Edward Stork's stories, which were more for like young adults, but uh, were similar, these prehistoric people or sometimes uh, Bronze Age people and, you know, very researched and very compelling. And I, I think like that sort of helped me fall in love with this as a subject. I've always been really interested in the anthropology. And it's it's kind of a shame because the caveman genre, like both in film and literature and just general pop culture is like a little bit dubious you know it's sort of rare to see anyone well, yeah, striving is, for authenticity yeah i think this is the other thing why it held so long in my fascination just like conan it's a one of a kind there's yes. never been another one like it there's no other as a child from, you didn't get it confused in your head with caveman starring ringo star also from 1981 uh, no <laughs> none of it because it's such a singular experience and there are sort of italian knockoffs of, yeah. of this movie which follow exact same structure where they just run around a big you know gravel pit and hit each other over the head and it goes really into and what the italians picked up is like oh cannibalism right like that's yeah. the one takeaway it's the, it's like sex and cannibalism but all the other stuff like ah beautiful shots you know kenya whatever uh, but so there there are tons of like caveman knockoffs, but just like with Conan and there are many similarities in the scores and later in the mating scene that were taken by Milius because you obviously saw this film. And so the, the, the kind of setup and the biggest deviation from the book is obviously the romance, but also the humor, which yeah. hits really home. The humor is so, and Ron Perlman, obviously we're going to get into it as the MVP of this movie. It's just <laughs> such a, a pleasure to watch even yeah. when it's not about the story or the structure, you just like amazed by the amount of um, sort of work that went into our, I, I think particularly for our generation, what we connect to in filmmaking is a lot of the workshop pictures behind the scenes, whether this was Star Wars or Alien, yeah. this haptic type yeah. of filmmaking, really going to the countries, really getting all the experts together in the sets and six years in the making and and then getting the Creating elephants to travel. Creating these other worlds for you to go into, yeah. And there's something that's totally lost in this digital realm and why we're we're sitting there now that sort of in connotation marks where everything is possible, we're sitting in the cinema and nothing grabs us, nothing touches us, nothing stays with us. And from the opening sure. shot here, this is something that's buried into my uh into my uh, memories. And when I hear the, the 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 first cello strings here and you just see the vast landscape and a tiny flame and it's such a concise filmmaking. Yeah. I don't need any, everything is set up within that shot. And now we get these rambling films where I feel the filmmakers completely lost the plot of what they even want to say with it, how they can do it. And it's just four hours long. And you know, it's like yeah. you're, you're conveying so little compared to such a small scene. And we get these scenes here in a string of pearls behind each other to where it's like, wow, this is another very concise scene. I feel it's directly linked to this kind of 
um, Arnold comes from commercials, uh, yeah. you know, just like Adrian Lin or, or or Ridley Scott. And they are very, they're able to condense this language of like very, uh, 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 the, the strength of cinema of conveying it all through pictures and, and, and music and without dialogue. And obviously this is what's needed here. That, 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 that very sort of uh, just like within the edit, you, you tell a million stories. It's yeah. got such a strong sense of its visual language going back to the source material. I was intrigued, Martin, when you mentioned that uh, I know first read the the comic book adaptation yes. of a specific yeah, the comic strip adaptation. Uh, makes me think of They Live, you know, John Carpenter reading the adaptation of Eight O'Clock in the yep. Morning, the Ray Nelson story rather than the original story. But obviously getting like appreciation of the visual from this. And it's great to like see all of the thing, all the supplements on the DVD where he's talking about the various locations and throughout the uh, director's commentary saying, oh, I wanted to film in Iceland. It's such a, I, you just yeah. won't shut up about this missed opportunity to shoot in Iceland. You're like, okay, man, settle down. It looks great. And then they show you the stills of Iceland. You're like, oh my God. I know. It, oh it my looks God. Like They're gorgeous. Just go, Have you like, guys been to, to Iceland? No, I don't. It's like on the surface of the moon. It's a fucking you know, the, crazy place. I, I had a friend who walked around Iceland for like three weeks with a medium format camera taking these photos. And they were like, incredible it, it's like it looks like another planet and you know there's a reason why people want to go there to shoot uh, science fiction like prometheus and stuff like that it just looks <laughs> yeah. like like where and is I, this but... i feel they locked out because the yeah. scotland scenes are some of my favorite scenes especially the saber tooth scenes and the kind of the the colors that scotland brings to it but you're right when you see the just the kind of you know locations shooting photos it's it's beyond cgi it's beyond yeah. these worlds that yeah. create just the, the, the shot up into that ice glacier you're like this would be really just any guy with fern a spear to have him trot along the horizon line and you got like I, I, that, that's why i feel amazed well, that it's never been done again i mean just try to do that again like wow i, I mean uh i don't need the commentary, mammoth i know like i know says that one of his big inspirations was akira kurosawa and i think you can really feel that influence in this film oh it this just, movie is so dursu it's, it's so i watched this and, movie well, and i just want to yell uh, dursu the whole I, time. I don't know if you guys get this but ron perlman always makes me think of like mifune in seven samurai the way he like jumps up in the air and the way he like stabs the spears in the ground like some oh. of his gestures the way he lounges around with yeah it, it makes one, me so much leg of, up of Mifune and, and, and Perlman, yeah. yeah, very much, and it's like Perlman in this movie. Well, he's so unlikable as a as a personality and an actor. We know way too much about people now. I, I think but, he's just kind of hit that phase of his career where he likes to talk yeah. about politics on Twitter. No, oh, it's, it's like, awful. But like as a caveman, I love him. Like, uh, and, and, well, I, and I love him in all of Anod's films. Like, a, oh yeah, Name of the Rose, in the Name of the Rose, and Enemy at the Gates. Also, yeah. um, you know, I, I mean, this was his first film, and like I think it's just such an incredible bit of casting to find somebody like Ron Perlman for this movie and he talked about I think in his biography how he was disappointed when he showed up to the audition and realized like oh there's all these other people with strange faces and like am I just getting cast because I I look strange and you know it was sort of disheartening but if you read a notes notes that he took from the audition it's like okay this guy's a must look at his facial expressions look at how he moves you know he was really interested in this performance and I think in all the actors, you can tell that they were very well cast, I think, for this movie. I mean, Everett McGill, apparently he was a replacement for a different actor who just couldn't get the physicality right, you know. And I mean, Radon Chong talks about like, uh, you know, maybe Ano was looking at casting Vanity in that role. And uh, <laughs> like, like Jennifer's well, like Island Vanity, part two. Well, like, <laughs> but, uh, you know, apparently like Vanity just had a hard time like 
squatting with her feet on the ground which is like something that i know considered like important for this yeah and she was and, she's i mean i mean they're all amazing and and yeah. and 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 perlman is mvp here he's just ellie but ray Dawn, she's so courageous and brave she's 22 yeah. at the time and they're like like I said, so na a natural performance, and we see the the photos behind uh, the stage. It's just fearless in in doing that. I mean, just imagine this is, could end up worse than a porn. You you know you this could I, a caveman. And, I mean, she and, talks and, about like it was such a relief when she saw the film, and it was good. You know, yeah. like can you imagine if you put all that effort and was cold and naked for Dude, months, and then the movie sucked? Like that's, that's, that's my main nightmare. reaction to watching this movie as a filmmaker is. This movie takes so much fucking guts to make yeah. this movie. Like this movie, people talk about like a brave artwork, this or that. To like, we're all gonna dress up and pretend to be eight people and walk around trying to get fire, and you're gonna say ooga booga and like, you know, lick blood and like have dirty sex on the ground, like, and and we're gonna take it seriously, and there's gonna be mm -hmm. no sense of camp, and it's going to be about character development and all of this. It's so like, like it's fuck. Like I wouldn't do it if you came to me and were yeah. like, make quest for fire. Be like, good fucking luck with that. You're gonna get, you know, Gene Shalit and fucking yeah. Rex Reed making fun of you for the next fifteen years. You know, yeah, they, they, they all did. A, they all did. All the contemporary reviews, like Pauline Kale said, she didn't know when she was supposed to laugh, and it's like, what movie were the, you the, the watching? Well, when you're but in, to defense, laugh, like... in her defense, she is a dumb dumb <laughs> who doesn't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I've seen some of the same kind of criticisms. Even today, I was browsing on Letterboxd, and there were people who were like, ah, like, I don't get the sense of humor. And like, I mean, for me, the, the sense of humor, it's so it's so silent film, actually. Like Ron Perlman, when he's got all these like uh, tubers or whatever, he's got this like pile of like zucchini looking things, and they keep like dropping out as he's picking up, picking them back yeah, up. That's, it's like, that's uh, just like... Yeah, such a classic comedy duo. I mean, uh, just uh, just uh, like uh, whatever Marx Brothers, Stooges, uh, this just the, the straight hero and the two you know dum dums doing everything. But even there, like she treating his uh, bitten dick, and then well, coming back from plucking the zucchini or something and drops this that one zucchini that ends up in this. I mean, that's just I feel, but yeah. that's Arnaud again from commercials. His commercials were very funny. They're they're humorous. They edit it super quick obviously you have to tell a whole story within you know two minutes and so that this is really his forte and what everybody wanted him to do coming out he was obviously you know super well educated going through all the film schools at 19 shooting these commercials making very good money already and then everybody had the idea oh you should do a lelouch le coulouche kind of like a comedy france let's yeah. go there's a whole industry especially in the 80s just fits right in in the 70s and he had made you know his first um, movie which is you know won the oscar that was kind of the, the early success but he was like a madman in the type of hat soak in that vein of filmmaker from the 80s and very much like my father so i feel very connected to him it's, it's such a sim sim sympathetic guy the way he talks about everything and just um yeah him trying to always come back and saying no i want to do with all this clout i got from winning the oscar early on i want to make quest for fire and everybody's yeah. like are you mad like do a comedy what are you doing and him just insisting that this is what i want to see realized and like you said uh chris it's just like what a daunting 
nightmare. And he talks about often when he first sees the costume tests and just the furs and just his heart falling. And he's like, oh, God, what are we making here? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like this just doesn't look right. The clean wigs, the makeup all, and all the stuff that stands yeah. out to us right away when we see something false. Until this day, they can't shoot a 70s period movie because they can't get the freaking hair right. I mean, with all the things, it's just you, everybody with the afros. And it's like, that's not how the 70s look. Why don't you look at movie? And it's just undoable. And you imagine doing that like you said with all that taking this seriously and having this playful very french sort of attitude about it injecting the humor but it never detracts from the seriousness of this is such a fine line a razor's edge to tread with that movie well this is this is to me when i watch it it i immediately it was funny because i immediately understood both why martin loves it and tony loves it even though you i think you guys are coming from philosophically opposite <laughs> directions 100%, it was like yeah. i immediately get this but i was watching it and was just like this is like the vikings or something this is like a traditional adventure movie and it's a swashbuckler this is crimson pirate with you know ape men instead of you know the 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 british kings and yeah exactly to that point sorry i think that yeah. because you all put your finger right in it i think martin is very much and we i, I admire him always and that's why we're so much so friend all you guys because you opened I, I was my horizons with like look at this article about neanderthals and here's the science <laughs> and like i don't want to know about anything so martin for, for martin this is a trigger to look outward and expand his knowledge in the world and now it gets him interesting in the real and i'm always happy within the contained fantasy of whatever you set in yeah. front of me i want to know nothing outside of it this never triggered me to then research the real prehistory or a blade runner about replicants in this role in society i'm fine <laughs> leave me in there like it just leave me contained and i accept anything you give me in there well it's but funny it you say you say blade runner too watching it this time i was like oh this is like science watching it this time watching it was like this is like science fiction this mm -hmm. is like the way science fiction is like the science, like what if science, you know, and it has that quality to it too of like hard sci-fi, you know? And yeah, it's, and it's all yeah. in the service of cinema. And this is what I find, yeah, what right I need, on. I need, like he says, there's one shot of Scotland and we reverse the shot and it's Kenya. Because yeah. it's in service of cinema, not in service of geology or history or whatever. The hat is wrong on the cowboy and that's not what they wore. I don't care. I know Tom Horn has a dumb hat and I hate his hat. <laughs> if it's uh, historically correct or not, I will never care. And and, yeah. and Leif and Cleef works. Uh, I don't care if it's correct in the history. It works. For me, this hat works. And I don't want to know if they real cowboys wore this and that. But this is, I feel we have to get back to this. And of course, this connects majorly to this sense of what I went through with my father in the 80s he was a theater director and what they started to do in theater and in, in this in this art form they started to in la bohème or la traviata they said let's get real prostitutes on stage let's get not a talented actress or singer let's get the real onto us which adds nothing to this the, the you know from this that is where Kudovkin, the best guy to lift a box is a guy who lifts a box for real <laughs> which if you've ever made a movie you're like that is the wrongest thing i have ever heard in my fucking life like yeah and do imagine doing the deli guy to play the deli guy in your movie Get exactly fucking, and you know william Demarest. imagine this uh uh in our current climate of representation and and who needs to be from where and we, we, this is such a dark hole that it's why such a film is so important not only in the narrative of this film like 
like talking about what connects us all right like this this yeah. this this ethereal flame that we have to preserve against this threats of outside and it all brings us together and this film functions in every scene like this we all connect to the modern uh, uh societal rhythms that are given to us by by our by our rules that we've set up and we can connect to that on such a primal level that yeah. we feel connected to them uh, and i we we all rolling everything up from the wrong end nowadays. Like it's it really comes yeah. from the inside out. My father is very sorry. One last thing, I think why I also connect to Arnaud so much because I grew up in this climate where my father, for example, there was an anecdote where he wants to build a theater outside of Neuschwanstein Castle and the whole village came down against him. He was like, you cannot build on this protected lake this is impossible and my father says this was like existential he had put all his money into it and we, we couldn't sleep and my mother was up all night and my father goes instead of then going to bed worried with like stomach cancer or something he went ah what about building in the lake there's no protection in building in the lake Aha! <laughs> you know this kind of Fitzgeraldo attitude about everything when we mm. hear Arno here with the vaccinated elephants and Iceland yeah. and moving them to yep. the Caribbean the volcano this takes a special kind of, this kind of guy is missing from today a lot. This yes, kind of yeah. adventurer, rogue, what you said, swashbuckler filmmaker, who is more interested in making this, seeing it himself, than the money. The, the money is uninteresting. Like, it's I, he has the money from commercials. He wants to make this movie. Like, but also that, that attitude you're saying of adventure, of like, I feel like filmmakers nowadays, like, like you really, you're going to make a movie about um, shooting on the, eighth moon of indoor and you're going to film it in a soundstage in Los Angeles. Like, how can you yeah. stomach that? Yeah. Like, how can you not be like, Let, let's go to Madagascar and find a cliff no one has ever filmed in front of and, and do that there. Like, I just don't understand the attitude of people in the industry who have all this resources behind them and aren't like, you know, Carpenter, let's go up to Alaska and film this in, in the actual freezing cold middle of nowhere to just be content to be on a soundstage. I think you're exactly right. I think the type of personality who's attracted to filmmaking now is not going to like hang out the side of the helicopter with the camera that they aren't going to be like this shot kind of sucks. Let me you I can't ask you my DP to hang out. Let me hang out and you grab onto my belt really hard and we're going to lean down and get the exact angle I want. I just don't think those people exist anymore. And this well, movie... Audience standards have dropped Ooh, too because of yeah. it. You know, there aren't enough Tony Stellas out there saying, you know, this is unacceptable. Well, people are just so willing to watch. I think they just, just watch... don't know. I think if you're yeah. raised in these commercials where you watch it and I watch commercials with my son or TV shows, especially I'm like, you know, that's all a fake digital backdrop. You know, he's, there's literally nothing in that room, that lamp he just walked in front of. Cause you can see if you know what you're looking for, there's not even a lamp there. That's like a fake digital lamp that they have there. He's literally hanging around in a room full of nothing. My son's always like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, look at the back and look close. There's no detail of interest in there. And there's no detail of accident in there. There's nothing in the shot that's not supposed to be in it or is out of the filmmaker's control. And that's always how you know it's fake. If there's no fucking weird thing in it that like that branch is blowing in an odd way. You know, when I think of like, just like how the tree looks in Virgin Spring when it's getting blown over when he's going to cut it down, right? Like you can't fake a tree in digital, you actually can't fucking do it because a real tree is outside of your goddamn control. A wheat field is outside of your goddamn control and it's going to do things that you don't want it to do. And if it's doing exactly what the filmmakers want it to do, you know it's fake.
You know oh it's my been god. Picked. This is this this save this please. Uh, preserve this in the museum because I could branch off this discussion into painting and digital and art and yeah. the, the what's so painful as parents uh especially because we are desperately now trying to instill instill this in the most loved possessions that we have in our kids who are yeah. who are not exposed to the same environment that we were and it's so fucking yeah. hard to work this uphill battle yes you can show them but we're working against the entirety of the world right now and the entirety of their influences and it's yeah keeping them at bay and and kind of but not overbearing you know we all know how to push them away it's such yeah. a difficult task where we are trying to make them see how we came to it and this whole um the the fact that we pick up on this it's it's it, oh god you just said so much I, I lost my train of thought already but it's it's i wrestle with this daily where i'm my task should be now in the stage that i arrived in my own work and craft i should be very critical out there to teach the next generation to look to eye because that's the next we're gonna we it's it's a really dangerous situation especially with ai now and the digital we've lost so yeah. much we lost our eye and but i it's it's directly opposed to my making money and i can't yeah. be this hero to stand out a couple of times i tentatively try to critique in a very constructive way i thought but still it's going to be harsh for people to hear i don't want to hurt anybody's feelings but we cannot lose this this sense of just let, take a small portion like the cinematic poster right that's my main occupation uh, what we are losing is so big and it has so many repercussions into publishing and and advertising in the outside world and how we are bombarded with garbage which is then going to influence the next generation of filmmakers and musicians and artists and and people that I mean, are out there that technology saying, it's it's only capable of creating generic garbage so what you have to teach other artists is to not be generic you know to be real artists and like this film it has so many rough edges and they all make the film more interesting i mean from a technical standpoint like there's shots where i know was saying well that wasn't really intended to be in the film the big pan at the beginning where you see the fire he's like that was just a camera test to see if the fire would show up and the it's not a perfectly smooth pan and it's it's perfect or you know perfect. the scene with uh everett mcgill when he's watching the uh human make fire and seeing that it's possible to make fire out of nothing and he's got you know the most incredible reaction his tears in his eyes and the the focus is soft so they said they reshot it and they said they realized you know the the version with the soft focus there was just an emotion there that they didn't get in the reshoot and i i think it's true like you know who who cares if the focus is soft if you're getting yeah an emotion out of that and if anything it makes it better because it just adds to the sense of spontaneity and you know there's so many that's another I mean, thing Anu took from Kurosawa, the single yeah. take, right? He said, you know, he didn't agree with the philosophy of multiple takes and getting it exactly right. As long as like, if you nail on the first one, move on. <laughs> I mean, it's also probably because if you have like 17 elephants dressed up as woolly mammoths, it's hard to do with one <laughs> take. After you yeah, but it's always, but... exactly. But it's always, it's a give and take and it's yeah. cumulative because we, we, like that shot, for me, it's the most concise opening why I love Robin and Marion so much. We know everything in the first two minutes. There's a tiny little God, scroll text. Really it's conveyed yeah. to the music and we have the deep cello here by by Saad, the music and it's just like we see the little fire and it cuts to the cave the warm orange on the cave and the hostile trees that come into the fire and surrounded by darkness and, and wolves darkness and, and wolves. You. And it, but you understand yeah. in a second it's all there yes. but if you don't know 
the entire history of European painting and how that came to be, I don't think you can make that shot. When you just play with the computer digital, we see it in architecture, everything's possible. You just zoom around and make all these things. And it it does. And it's an interesting reflection. Again, what you said, it's not only the fantasy and all this stuff. It's also the tools that matter. I I insist that the computer it doesn't, there's a haptic humanity that comes into us when you use charcoal and you mix that with a glue that's made of animal fats and so and we put that on the canvas that's what we react to when it's projected when it's digital yeah. there is something that we cannot even explain what's missing and so it's not only the fantasy and the scripts and the storytelling it's the means it really is baked into the the fabric of our world a charcoal made from a burnt tree and how we then paint with that and i feel that's reflected in the music this, this ethereal echo that's built in the music almost reflects on the entire gothic cathedrals that are going to be built with yeah. our human adventure yeah. and the classic symphony orchestra that one day will be out of this simple gesture that we're seeing on a fire and then eventually this movie that's been made out of it and it's sort of a beautiful satisfying ellipsis that's created in the film that you feel without even analyzing it too much but it's sort of it, it's all yeah, it, it, it creates something that has to be every single part is built from knowledge and skill. And then we we strip that away, whether it's the mime, the language that's been created for this film, the individual workshops, the makeup. And that takes time and culture and, and care. And I feel we, lot, we we're giving away so much of it. And we're always talking about story and script and, and character development and representation. But we, we, we di we're discarding an entire humanity of, of skills and craft uh, that's yeah. below that at first. Yeah, just the this movie even, you're making me think of just like the the tribe that he gets captured into that Ray Don Chong is from, the masks they're wearing. There's mm. something so primal and human about wearing a mask and then you think about it, that's what all these characters are doing. The actors are doing in these movies all have masks on as well. And this movie just feels very connected to something human and primal. And I was thinking about that in terms of like what science used to be. I even feel like that science used to really care, like where did fire come from and how was it harnessed? Like that's a scientific question that's interesting to every school child right? That you just ask that question, they go, yeah. And science doesn't seem to ask those kind of questions anymore or, or diminishes them in some way, I feel like. And that this movie's mindset belongs to a different era of just awe, like science as a, as a thing that connects us to awe, as opposed to just another tool to alienate us from our own lives, you know, like that com computer science is inherently alienating some real microprocessors and sort of quantum physics type science are, are alienating in some fundamental way. They're anti-human in a very fundamental way. And this movie's connected to the science of that, that matters to us of like, what was life? 80,000 years ago. What well, was that? Yeah, how that, how that question affects yeah. the story too, how it gets yeah. interlaced into yeah. the narrative of like, how do these people survive, you know? And we're given, you know, because there are saber-toothed tigers, because there are, you know, warring tribes and wolves and, you know, disease and, and everything and they need to get fired to survive. That becomes the drive of the story and like what we get into with these characters. That question, that scientific question that needs to be answered of show me how people survived you know, before they, while they were out there in the wild.
But on top, and what Arnaud adds, the second layer of not only adding that that second geographical Kenya, the cradle of civilization, Africa, and the, the kind of advanced tribe, he's also, we're, we're telling the story here fundamentally about how culture travels, their journey, yeah. the yes. humor, that they learn humor, which is this great bracket I want to get deeper into detail of, of, of then returning from that changed, altered, and now bringing the travel of culture. It's so, it's, I don't feel there's any I mean, other the film, film that, that ever examines this. That 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 is more powerful than fire. You know, they go from ca trying to capture fire from other tribes or from nature to, oh, you know, I mean the uh, the main group. You know, they're basically characterized as uh, Neanderthal, which was our closest cousin. Uh, you know, they in the film they're incapable of making fire. They have to try to steal it and other. Other hominins are trying to steal it from them. And, you know, by the end, you know, they bring it back and you have the, the, the hilarious payoff when the firekeeper drops it the second time. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't matter because they brought back Radon Chong and she knows how to create fire. And that knowledge and cultural exchange and genetic exchange, that is what's going to ensure their survival. And I mean, when the film was made, you know, the mindset was that Neanderthals went extinct and people didn't even think uh, a lot of scientists didn't even think that it was possible for us to interbreed when this film was made you know it's sort of a controversial or was a controversial ending at the time where it's uh, depicting uh you know her and everett mcgill as a couple and you know he's a neanderthal and she's a homo sapien and she's pregnant you know there were scientists at the time who said well that's impossible and now the thinking has completely changed and they've uh, sequenced the genome and they say oh like actually you know they now I'm sure you know I I would be willing to bet that everyone in this conversation has a some degree of Neanderthal DNA in them you know so it it changes our understanding of like well maybe these especially this other John kind of people, Cribs well you know <laughs> it, like <laughs> maybe but uh, you know it's it, all of a sudden the thinking shit. is that well you know maybe these people didn't didn't completely go extinct if the, some of their DNA survives into modern humans today then you know you can sort of imagine that you know these characters did something that's going to ensure their survival and what really ensures their survival it's it's knowledge it's culture it's like a lot of human traits you know that are uh, you know being able to be empathetic and being able to show reverence for nature and have love you know that these are as important traits for long-term survival as like uh, brutalism yeah, and, and violence, yeah, you know? <laughs> precisely. And it's baked into this, the, the difficult plot of the added to the book in the film, the romance aspect, the caveman, uh, the caveman falling in love with the homo sapiens. But what ultimately gets her to leave the love is that they cannot laugh. They have no humor. They have no concept of yeah. humor. So when she, in the just as a filmmaking uh, uh, craft aspect, like how do we get her to leave in in this movie? How she do we feels make her so lonely in that moment. She feels her, her so lonely in that moment. You know, yeah. We're like, exactly. it, it's it's her like, I, I, you know, the way I think of it that moment, you know, when she's laughing when the rock falls on Perlman's head and she thinks it's hilarious and they're just looking at her like they have no idea what she's even They've never heard doing. that sound of and laughing. It, it's like her realizing like, oh, I'm not surrounded by people. I'm surrounded by animals. You know, they might right. look like me, but they're they're not like me. And then later in the film, they do develop humor. And I think, it, you know, there's something very intuitive because this, again, was contrary to the science of the time. And now it's kind of the thinking has shifted, but saying that. You know, maybe Neanderthal did have capacity for 
humor and art and things that uh, at the time that they didn't really think was possible. Now there's, you know, but a little bit of science like, to support that. But I think it, it like, you know, adults' I, artistic instincts of saying like, like, you know, no, I think like, you know, they were maybe animals that could be people. And, you know, I love the Everett McGill's, not not only his performance, but just like his uh, his soulfulness in this movie. There's scenes where, you know, he's staring up at the moon and you're wondering like what's going on in his head. And it's, you know, he's like an animal who wants to be a human being. You know, you feel that in him that he he wants to be more than just this like subsisting creature in nature, you know, that he wants to but it's always more held that, in yeah. balance because in the book they're very much more capable. They speak a lot more. They yeah. they 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 hunt. They're very sufficient in whatever they do. And here they find always something that keeps you and on bal at, at edge at caveman level, right? And it's yes. again a thin line because you don't want to make them too dumb, but you also don't want to make it brilliant and soulful the whole time. You know, no, so it, like when they carry the, the yeah. way he does it is obviously through the physical performance. But you like saying in his eyes, everybody is masterful in this and. and and when they attack the the cannibals, the way he holds his his weapon even is, is yep. idiotic. Like it, that's not <laughs> how you are prepared to hit anybody. But that's what keeps the audience at bay. It makes us nervous. It makes us care. Like oh, this guy is like. Then he steals the the branch that is it's already extinguished. The wrong. Extinguished, stick, yeah. the wrong <laughs> so he's still an idiotic Neanderthal. He's not on that yep. level yet. But he realizes his mistake, so he gets back. And this as an audience, just in the universe of filmmaking, I always give the most power to art. If we can see this in this film, it is possible. It's just yep. like when you encounter Tintoretto in Venice. That's God. That's God. Yes. That is yeah. like there's just nothing well, like it. Because I mean, and... the scientists, like I know, he researched this for about three years nonstop, and I think instead of using the science as a as a crutch, he used it as a, a jumping off point, as inspiration. Because he said, you know, you talk to fifty different anthropologists about what was life like back then, and you're going to get fifty different answers. There's so much ambiguity. And I think like this kind of gets back to this idea of the film as science fiction, where you know we we know it wasn't nothing. But, you know, it's it's hard to kind of come at this from a scientific standpoint and create a coherent vision because the gaps are enormous. You have to fill those gaps with artistic all, interpretation, you know. What we can bet on 100% is what Chris said. Once One side, whenever you want to place it, encounters culture that is unknown yes. to them and, and sort of masks, rituals drying foods. And it's all, of course, bundled here because we, we're, we're experiencing this. Dwellings. All of a sudden, we see one species encounter all that in a bundle and, and the culture shock, whatever that yeah. culture shock is that we all experience in our own lives, traveling or seeing something extraordinary. That is so true. And whether this makes sense in the movie, it's just very uh, convenient and beautifully realized because we, when he sees the first dwelling, when he travels into the plains of Kenya and he sees the house that's decorated as a kind of buffalo with the old horns, yeah. he thinks it's an animal. Then he goes inside and he I looks up. That inside moment. this animal yeah. it's yeah. amazing then he encounters the vase and he's sort of scratching it because he doesn't even know later we see him drink from a and we know a huge step has been made that he yes. accepts a vessel of <laughs> containing some kind of uh liquid that now you can drink out of and this whole assimilation so is hilarious he, like goes native yeah. when he like uh, when they God. catch um when they catch ron perlman and 
uh, Namir El Kadi, and like he comes out and he's got the makeup on, but it's kind it's of so like it, it's not as neat and tidy as the uh, Homo sapiens, all their yeah. makeup, and he's just like laughing at them in this big awkward way, and he's towering he's, over all the humans. The like, and Ron yeah. Perman's look in that moment, that's he's so the Oscar. judgmental. It's yeah. so great. It's the most animal look I've ever seen. When you watch a lot of animal documentaries and you see how <laughs> I'm always fascinated when like the two cheaters are at the water hole and they're sort of ignoring the threat but still drinking, and then they're looking at it, and then they're fighting it's such an odd interesting behavior uh and ron perlman and just embodies his hurt look when he sees the assimilation <laughs> and just him, i want a freeze frame of that that's the ultimate My gift favorite reaction. part in the whole yeah. movie Love it's it. so good and he's so hurt by and he realizes everything in that moment and another scene that i think only ever picked up on maybe now and i, I always felt it but the, the, and that's what i mean with keeping the balance of keeping a caveman when they finally escape from the higher culture back to their quest of fire the fact that um uh namir steals all the spears it's like stealing a bunch of who billiard cues you know it's so awkward to run with them like i'm taking all the weapons but of course that's they're just knocking humans out like i I mean, you don't know what the dialogue is, but I always imagine that that one human that wakes up and laughs is saying like, hey, you're free to go. Like, you're not prisoners. And he like, talks about anyway, just just because he's escaping. Yeah, and that whole interesting thing of the, the beauty ideal of being, you know, we get the Venus of Willendorf, which is yeah. the prehistoric yeah. sculpture find, which Martin knows a lot about, I'm sure. And all of a sudden, fat women encountering a different beauty ideal. Because, you I know, mean, you have Ray to think, Dawn like, is on the lower level. She's, she's not the she's beauty skinny. in this I know, when they're like trying to pick out women to... To breed, like probably uh, my interpretation of that when they're like bringing out all the all the voluptuous women is like, hey, we're going to shore up our gene pool because it was so rare to run into other other people and you don't want to get inbred, so they're just well, like, that's okay. Conan, right? Millie yeah. saw that, and if yeah. I take one takeaway, he's Conan. You <laughs> yeah. must mate with everybody. Well, you know? it should and be pointed like, well, out right too. Their Chong makeup looks so much so... like the makeup Conan puts on before he goes right. to raid right. the yeah. temple yeah. that. It feels like a really obvious connection. And another quote to Arnold is obviously the music. When they encounter the cannibals in the fire, which is one of another Ron Perlman, where he swings that cutlet and he's sort of enjoying eating the food and they discover the skull and the burnt out thing. The music is absolutely Predator. That's yeah. that just yeah. da, 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 and it comes the realization <laughs> of the cannibals. You like and he just looking at the skull and the cleaning of the skull and predator. And there's so many links to that. They all saw this movie and they yeah. were just even the musical notes hint at this really early that sort of the sort of background ambience of it is very predator. And Ron yeah. Perlman realizing he's eating human flesh is just like, <laughs> I just can't get enough of him swinging that cutlet. And like, just he's so proud that he has it to himself. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's, and it's this... so interesting to me, like how they characterize the different hominin groups, because like you, you hear scientists talk about like, well, you know, back then there were between seven to nine other kinds of humans living contemporaneously. And you're like, what, what does that really, what was that like? What does that really mean? And so I love that. You know, even if they don't really know for sure, um, saying like, you know, these these hominins are one way and these are another. And like you get the ones at the very beginning of the Wagaboo, which are almost like, um, you know, Bigfoot looking thing. I don't know if they're supposed to be like <laughs> Drowpithecus or something like that. But you had these like I thought they were just supposed to be Scottish, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, like you get these like varying degrees of humanity by looking at all these different kind of tribes or groups which I, I think is interesting just creating that cross-section and again like going back to the the voluptuous uh homo sapien women which kind of recalls the venus sculptures that you know are still around to today i've seen some of them in person but like 
you have to think like during the ice age like for, for a woman to be like fat that must have been the sexiest thing like ever, I think. like She's a survivor, you know like, you yeah. think of like how how um harsh those conditions could have been that to like see that it would have been like oh wow um you know and but radon chong I, I think is like perfect as the kind of small yeah. tiny thing in this like group of big neanderthal and even just like casting somebody with that kind of ethnic background where radon chong she's you know ethnically like uh has roots in africa europe asia you know she looks like she could be the mother of all of humanity you know yeah i was like, like why really didn't they cast choice, tommy chong yeah. he should have been the, the he should have been the tribe's leader <laughs> there, there, is, the there is one a big joint but there is one guy who's who's in um if the the tribe the human tribe who looks so much like cheech there's right. one dude who's in the background that every time I see him, the guy standing next to him in the mask, I'm like, is that Tommy Chong under there? Did they sneak him? That Did they sneak amazing. Cheech and Chong into this movie? Like it's, you know, fucking... Uh, up in smoke. Know, exactly. Fire up in the smoke. Corsican brothers. That it's fucking no, because, yellow because because they would have branched off and made their own caveman movie if they had been oh, in this. I, I'm, I'm I think they'd be off with uh, Ringo yeah. Starr, you know? Yeah, exactly. I would I would absolutely watch Cheech and Chong's 10,000 BC. I would yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was a, talk about a cultural barrier. I never understood Cheech and Chong, and my American <laughs> wife always tried to. This is hilarious, and I was like the European. I I cannot connect. Like, it's not. What funny. am I it's supposed to get funny. out of it's this? It's not funny. <laughs> it's brutally but, not yeah. funny. <laughs> Talk about his daughter uh, was an early love of mine. Like uh, Beat Street, obviously, I was like in love with yeah. her, but I didn't even realize that Commando. it was her. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. city. Then, oh yes, and and I and um Stony Island, which is an early musical comedy, sort of living in that punk New York world. That was her first movie, I think. But yeah, I didn't even connect her. That's she disappears, and her voice even like it's so amazing oh, what she's managed. I, I to love do the here. the way the language is done. Where like the Neanderthal. Yes. They have their own language in the film, and it was, uh, <laughs> you know, connected by uh, Anthony or constructed by Anthony Burgess, uh, who was apparently paid a lot of money for all these like grunting sounds. But you know, they're they're speaking in a way that's very kind of like utilitarian, and and she's like chatting away, like you know, it's mm. it's like when you you know go out with a girl and she's like chatting away, and like I'm not even totally paying attention to what she says but it's just nice to have her like you know Radon Chong the way she plays it where she's just like chatting away she's having a conversation and uh you know then th this group of Neanderthal that they, they speak in such a Luke Besson's got to be a huge fan of this film don't you think I mean oh, for sure Mila Jovovich and Fifth Element is basically sure. Ray Tan Chong's character. That's a good point. And, and Arnaud always get lumped together because they're sort of the representation of the French filmmakers who branched off into America and had some success. But I feel Arnaud is a different animal. And it's interesting, sort of like what Chris said in the beginning, again, that he's in America, the reception is much more, this is a survival, cool adventure movie. In Europe, this isn't. In Europe, this yeah. is very much like, I let, this is Herzog. And, well, you know, I, they shared an office and there are many interesting anecdotes. I, I feel as well like that's one reason why I know, like he's like i wouldn't say obscure but like he's not talked about in the same kind of realm as like a lot of the um over here anyway like a, like the big kind of heavy hitter art house guys of the last 40 yeah. years but he's not quite commercial enough to get like lumped in with uh 
you know, with like fifth element, <laughs> that, that sort of thing necessarily. He's sort of in between that. And no, he's in that second yeah. wave of like branching after, not the Nouvelle Vague France, then Fassbender traversing into the German new wave, yeah. the Wim Wenders, the type of, you know, Blechtrommel. We get all, uh, we, we get but like, like a, uh, you know, I think you talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, The Bear, I love that movie. And, uh, you know, they don't necessarily think of it as like an art. Filmmaker. Oh, I love the bear. The you bear know, I saw really early on. I got introduced to know that's the great because I, mean, I you love can see, uh... I love Gerard Brock, who yep. you know he wrote all of those absolutely phenomenal repulsion and 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 those early movies and Jean de Florette and, and things like that. And so I saw this movie. I saw the bear because of liking Gerard Brock yeah. and being like, "Holy shit, this is a great movie! Like this is not some trifling thing. This is like a legitimate." film yeah. uh in the same it's way, not uh quest for it, fire is it's, it's not, not like, like a uh, the film. journey home you know you, you think maybe it's, it's not be milo like a, and otis you know. yeah no and it's again yeah. talk about what he does from film to yeah. film so every five years he sort of roughly makes a a film and he takes his cloud from each movie these films are all big money makers i mean we have to talk about the budget and connotations of today it's mind-blowing this film costs like what 12 million made 40 million name of the rose cost like 17 million made 77 million yeah. i mean these films are all in that type oh. of i think he was successful until about I think Enemy at the Gates was kind of a flop and that sort of yeah. killed a lot of his um, his Momentum, presence, I, I think, of... in ho Hollywood or like you know, they, those kinds the of The industry had changed. Films. Like nobody would accept anymore to set up a movie for six years like he does. And yeah. he sort of invested a lot of his own money. He and researches. He, he researches. Yeah. And he's just uh, all about a sympathetic cool guy that you love hearing talk and you feel like every moment that he goes from name of the rose to the bear is another step like the difficulty people don't realize the difficulty of making the bear i mean to get a little yeah. baby bear just to interact with yeah. a grown bear that alone is mind-blowingly <laughs> impossible to have a shot where they both stand up on their hind legs together it's impossible. Yeah. The big bear would eat the little bear at the slightest yeah. annoyance ever. And to if you ever go into yeah, that was early experience with my mother in the cinema yeah. where we were both sitting there crying watching the bear. Uh, um, and I love that too, but I didn't connect those. But it's so interesting as a filmmaker of what connects these together. Same with yeah. Umberto Eco. Umberto yeah. Eco in Europe was for a long time known it's impossible to film. A medieval mystery yeah. detective story it's like no stay away from it Umberto Eco is such a high level of art sophistication you don't understand and the one time he makes like a very digestible humorous interesting thing it's like how who tackles that I don't know is perfect Sean Connery of course for me perfection yeah. Yeah. there you go and shoot this in uh with a tv budget and Emmerich and and you film it in Bavaria and Italy and France and you and all you combine get, it you into Ron an back and Michael yeah, and, yeah and it combines into an MC Escher cathedral in your mind. And he manages, it's all in there. That's the the the, the name of the rose. And you get quieting, of course, something John and I all often talk about when I when he's like, What do you want to talk about? And I was like, I want to talk about Helmut Quietinger. And then everybody's like, Who is that? And it's like, Yes, exactly. It doesn't translate. <laughs> this is the problem with so much film discussion, it's so America-centric, obviously, yeah. that a lot of this outside fringe thing gets ignored and they don't get the same kind of do and i feel the same thing happened to him the reason he got the oscar he tells so funny because they all thought he was black you know they thought he was an ivory coast filmmaker and he's like his <laughs> agent was like don't show up at the oscars for uh, uh black and white in color don't show up because they're going to be like who's this guy and he never received he never I, I don't know if he got it but he did definitely didn't show up and that he used the oscar as sort of his entrance to make all these other films but it's of funny course, you, yeah 
sorry. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. You talk about there being a, a separate history of like American centric stuff. I just recently, like in the past two months, got on a big Patrick DeWire kick because I was like, I love Sari Noir so much. And I love, you know, uh, uh, is it called Going Places or Taking Off the Bertrand Blyer one where Tim and, and, uh, uh, and um, Depardieu? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about him. Like, I know he died young. He's probably only got a few movies. And then it's like, no, he has like, 30 movies that you've never fucking heard of, including the comedy, the coup de tête that he made with John Jacques So just yeah, by Saab, like coincidence, I had watched that one, you know, and it's like, yeah, which Saab entire... makes the music for. So yeah. there's a lot of links in Europe in the eighties of this type of like the Zone de la Ville and all these kind of leftovers from the grad generation, Delon and Gabin. And now we get the new wave of, uh, and the nerve still working. Uh, Departieu comes in and they're just cranking. This was, they were still making movies far from the glory days, but Italy and France and Germany were going so strong in the eighties. I mean, they were like, yeah. I remember the event movies all the time. My mother and I used to go to the cinema together, not because it's like, oh, that's part of your duty as a good central European. You go to the opera, you go to the theater <laughs> and you see the new movie that's discussed. And so we often did this thing where we split up. My mom saw like, what's that uh, um, a movie with uh, uh, Malkovich and and uh, uh, and Uma Thurman and oh, Dangerous like, Liaisons. Yeah, yeah. Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. All the women, all the moms went to see that. And yeah. I went to see whatever adventure stuff that was on. <laughs> but oftentimes, with, and it's so sad to see the landscape now in Berlin, there's almost, there's so, it's like America. We, we fall behind almost 10 years late, but there are a few cultural institutions left highly funded. The rest is zero. It's absolutely yeah. zero interest and zero public discussion of cinema in that space. There's no, it just doesn't exist anymore. So yeah, to go back to this, it's so interesting that this film finds such an interesting expression, like you said, in all its forms, in the book, in the film, in the comic book, which I haven't seen and read, but also in the poster art outside. These are fantastic yeah. run of posters. Mm -hmm. We get Philippe Duré, I mean, one of the metaloulon crazy guys who draw like the most insane comic books you've ever seen, which then in turn influences all the American filmmakers to make Blade Runner. And so this source machine, he gets him to do the poster for this film. What a wild, this would never, ever be done today people are like what this is a cartoon this is what i always get now like if you get a drawn poster people think it's a cartoon and you're yeah. like oh my god <laughs> this is so dumb we've devolved so much but yeah this is uh, i i think when uh when we all eventually go on twitter uh, there's an interesting branch of of the art that sources that i see uh, all fed into this and it's a very specific human uh european comic book gerard uh, Möbius. Yeah. thing that feeds very much into this film as well very interesting uh talk about cultures meeting and, and and clashing over taking this american art form transmuting it to europe then having a european filmmaker in commercial space going back to america and this pit film interestingly yeah, was pitched around from columbia to fox the making the origins of this film is so interesting in the sort of just film nerdness of its origins uh, of Herzog you know, vowing to commit suicide in the office yep. if they don't make this film. <laughs> Typical, <laughs> as you expect them to. Everybody is like, yeah, uh, it's, there is, um, uh, and, and even like, yeah, there's so many connecting points, Chris, early on when you said something um, about, or Martin, where, where the, the just the different tribes that I love, the cannibals, which are obviously the fantasy elements. But if we see the big role model for this as 2001 Kubrick, obviously the opening mm -hmm. scene, the dawn of time, what is so interesting that Kubrick already has in a, in a tiny moment this this whole film sort of encapsulated. Um, 
because he plays Richard Strauss, right? What is the opposite of, how do we get from this dawn of history with the monolith yeah. to Richard Strauss, like the high, and this is echoed in the music here when we see the dawn of time and we hear the yeah. cello strings go into the so big, the big moment where Ray Dawn is, she's laughing at them, they're at the fire, the tree catches on fire in the darkness and they're all sort of, it sounds almost moment. like Ligeti or one of these um, more atonal composers. And But I love you get these great themes that Sartre builds out of that. And it's like you can hear the, like the way you sort of phrased it, it's like you can hear the civilization coming out of this sort of abstract music and it, it turns into a theme. And it's like, you know, these characters can rise out of this sort of... Uh, abstraction animal abstraction into something more coherent and more civilized or you know, like uh, there's something the symbol in the of music catching, that reflects yeah. the themes I, th I think like it's really powerful in that and it's I so also, cinema uh, the, the amber catching yeah. fire onto the tree which looks like a mistake in the filming it didn't look like but of course we know that the, the symbolism of them at their first frolicking in the middle of the night of having back the fire and the yeah. music really purely there and you don't hear her laughing but you see her first joy at them enjoying themselves this is the first sort of cultural moment with the big symphony coming in that we get this jotted throughout the film obviously him learning how to make fire as you said is the key moment of them yeah. then going beyond survival and and carrying that knowledge I, I, back i love that you guys familiar the... with the uh template for the music the pendereki Renati to the oh, victims yeah, of the, hiroshima um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah pendereki is you can hear that also um but i, I was going to say i love the music when when he meets the mammoths and he's Everett McGill has like the little bit of uh grass clump of grass that he offers to them. Like, you know, it just really gives you that sense of awe and wonder of seeing something that, that doesn't exist anymore. And I, you know, I love when these themes kind of come out of the more, I love, I love that like they dare. Right. kind of music. Yeah. Because the mammoth is a critical scene. I never liked the mammoth scenes, not in the book and not in the film. And it's interesting. I wanted to see a mammoth beyond anything on film. Like that's what was one of my... It's just I, hard to do a mammoth at, with like, right, even if you dress up an elephant, it's like, it's still kind of going to look like an elephant but, with a rug but not on because it. Of, not, not because of that. It's it's tonal. And I didn't analyze it as this as a kid, obviously, but it's always oh. like, eh, it's tonal because in the book, which is much more... In the book, the tone of the book makes sense that they would have this fantasy element of all of a sudden... Like, let's make a coalition coalition between us against the tribe in the film which is sort of dirt and let's get all the leaves in the hair and let's get really into the yep. grime and it's very important it has to stink the maggots have to go into the fur and then all of a sudden we get this disney tonal shift like let's make friends with the mammoth and just like yeah. it's obviously it's just so easy in the book to write this and it's so incredibly hard to make <laughs> it dress up animals uh in stockings and have them transported and vaccinated to scotland and then having to run in the right direction and uh, uh you know it's, it's i'm sorry but but i think the mammoth scene is cool i like it. i i, I love the way that well, like every mcgill plays like, it, it like <laughs> he's so he looks so cautious coming up to them and like Amazing, yeah. again you hear you hear an anthropologist will say like oh yeah maybe we worshiped the uh, animals back then but like what does that really mean what does that look like and you know you get like just the way he plays it you get this sense of awe and reverence that like hey this thing is bigger than me and more powerful than me yeah. and just taking that and, chance and book, of like i'm gonna you know g go up and feed a god basically and right. then like you know when his when his the rest of his group comes with him and like perlman's just kind of got his hand up and he keeps <laughs> looking away and glancing it's it's like you know 
Ark of the Covenant or something, the way he plays it. Yeah, don't make eye contact. And it's yeah. that very big eye that sort of you get in Kinoshita, in, in, in uh, uh, Kanito Shindo, the whale god. You get the fake eye, the big yeah. sort of like looking at you. Uh, but it, no, I love the mammoth scene. Uh, no, no doubt about it. But it feels when you know the book, it, it, the book is written so it sets up all these the rules of tribal laws and nature and there's the tiger then comes the lion there's a hierarchy and nobody touches the mammoth that's a, and it, there's yeah. it, there's given this background mythology to it where in the film if they encounter the mammoth they're like ah oh, there it is and we make friends obviously that's it's not doable but it's done to such greatness you don't care how shoddy it looks and how it's so it's done so amazing and I love the atmosphere in in that particular scene the darkness the clouds coming in the way it's filmed it's all it's all what, amazing. What uh, I really but, but, love um, is like at the end when Perlman, he's telling the story of their adventure to the other Neanderthals. Return and, of the Jedi. Yeah, it, it's like C-3PO <laughs> and Return of the Jedi. And like, he, you know, he flips that uh, skull around to make the, you know, make the tusks and he's doing his hand as the trunk. And like, you know, that, that like, hey, you know, we saw something in, incredible here. Like, I have to tell this to everybody else. And, yeah, you know, that idea that like, you know, you see something. But see I something think it's also... Because it works so amazing. Yeah. The saber tooth is what, the standout sort of scene. The humor from the humor from yeah. the realization point. And Arno it's... says himself, when we saw the test of them actually accepting the saber teeth and actually being able to eat something with it and act natural around, he's like, we got this. Because yeah. that just, from a composition as a painter's eye, the yellow of the fur against the mud pit, the way it's filmed from the top against the Scottish sort of you know, dark um, uh, 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 violets. And it just as a painting, this is exactly from the picture books I used to hold open yeah, of yeah, prehistory yeah. and look. And it's so successful, that, that kind of hunt, that simple hunt that ends up in the trees and then even from a cinema rule type of time scale, the fact that they're not devising anything clever to get out of, they're just going to wait till the... They're just going to fall out of the tree. <laughs> well, they're gone. Well, Luckily, they're gone. Well, when he starts like, eating days. the leaf, like almost more out of like boredom and hunger, they're like chewing on the yeah. leaves. And then just the next shot, like all the leaves are stripped off this tree. Like <laughs> You just get that sense of the passage of time. But like you were saying about the saber-toothed tiger, like it looks right out of a um, Iberian... Yeah. illustration and i know he did the cover for the original um novel so like it's interesting to see that influence of the paleo artwork in it and i mean now now they say maybe these uh smilodons these saber-toothed lions um yeah. the the tusks weren't or that the fangs weren't protruding they might have had these like big jolly faces because you see like the cave art from that time but it's and, very like, much they don't like have these teeth sticking out but it, like it's just such a striking image and it... it's uh it's so funny that when you see, remember a couple of years ago, every freaking museum in the world had, you know, Greek statues used to be painted and they're all yeah, yeah, ugly yeah. as shit. <laughs> ugly and gaudy, and I hated it. I was yeah. like, I hate this discovery. This is dumb. It makes, it, it makes it makes the Greek culture so much less in my eyes. You know, I was like, all democracy, fuck it. If they were painted, I hate it. And they, they're not able to. I need. Uh, That's one yeah. of my favorite sentences. I forgot who it is, but uh, patina is the reward of the masterpiece. This is very interesting when I look mm -hmm. at art and I try to look at how why I don't connect to my contemporaries and why when we talk about paintings, I don't see what they see why and it's it's that that jump that i uh like yeah if, if it had that and now we see a digital animation of it how it had the stupid fangs now yeah. i'm out i don't even get yeah. a good painting I mean, of the rendering know, of how this looked i'm i don't i don't i don't want this to be reality now and and the fact that like you you do it with real lions right up in their faces is, is great like you know we keep talking about the tactile quality of this film and you know even 
than if they'd used stop motion or special effects to try to realize that. I don't think it would have I don't think it would have worked for this film. And it's not like it's not like Quest for Fire is shot like a documentary, like it's pretty stylized, but it's just, you know, there's a striving for some kind of authenticity there that I think you would break that if you had to use uh matte paintings and stop motion and things like that. And you know, later yeah, just that. Sorry, exactly, and that because it connects again to that, that later shot that so... movies. Like there, there've been a couple. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, sorry. Catch, <laughs> it's catch, it's <laughs> lagging a bit, but um, sort of that reflective shot of where it's in that Scottish scene. They're still in the Highlands with the saber teeth, and they're walking. The first time they see the tribe really far away and deep, sharp Kurosawa like focus. Yeah. They see them on the ridge, and you see Kenya. That's clearly Kenya. Yes. But it's so wild, and you connect it in your head. But it's so great to see we're coming out of one like you could never do it in Scotland. You could never make that that gap between civilizations, ideas of traveling, time travel, and the fact that they look back there in Scotland and they reverse and you see the fear of seeing just other humans. We don't know yet that they're cannibals, but just the fear that somebody else is over there. And and we've all, if you ever hiked anywhere- Somebody else is over there with fire. Yeah. If you ever hiked anywhere alone, and Martin knows that you're going to yes. walk and you see somebody else on that horizon line. It's, I had that. It's unsettling. Yeah, oh, it's unsettling. I was in the yeah. Engadin, one of my favorite regions, mythology for me, uh, on, on the Giacometti's trails, something my grandfather showed me. And later on, I used to do a lot of hikes by myself, not big ones. There's dinosaur valleys and interesting things to explore. And, um, uh, but I was just on a small trip and then I would go back. There's a very interesting long route you can take and it takes overnight. There's the, in Switzerland, all over there, these night cabins that are open and you can just stay and then continue to walk. And this is what I planned to do. And I, I was laying in the sage, beautiful on the top in this 3000 meter altitude. And I was just, I'm going to walk down to this cabin and continue this walk later. And all it took, it was one other guy walking very high on the peaks traversing. And it was, I'm sure it was a nice guy. He waved over and I was like, okay, I'm going home. I'm not going to that cabin. And just the unsettledness of, 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 um, it's a primordial fear. It's in of, our instincts. Yeah. Yeah. Th- seeing somebody alone, my father would have reacted completely different. He would have made friends forever and wrote a theater play together. Yeah. <laughs> but just me, why I connect to this Desu Ursala or something, it was like, that kind of always got me as a child. Like, um, just like all of a sudden being plunged into this, uh, unthinkable task of returning fire to your tribe or something. I mean, well, I think that's also why the, the locations work so well and why it was important to go to all these different places. Because I think, like Ano said, in the in the world of the film, they probably are in southern France and cross over the Pyrenees into Spain and then back again, which is like a pretty short trip. But for these these cavemen, it has to feel enormous, like they're so far away from home. And there's a there's an emptiness to the Canadian wilderness or the, you know, the locations used that it makes these people feel small. It makes it feel like, uh, you know, they're just this tiny little speck in the enormity of nature. And it is weird when they run across anybody else. I think, you know, if you shot in a place where you're more restricted, like, ah, oh, we can't, we can't tilt the camera at that angle because you're going to see the houses in the background. I think, you know, you would definitely lose something. So it, it was important to actually to kind of stitch together 
all these locations and you know sometimes you have a shot reverse shot wars, canada and kenya and <laughs> out of out of that like it often is with filmmaking out of yeah. this sort of improvisation necessity came a better movie i felt iceland yeah. obviously would have been created an unbelievable thing that i would have loved to seen but it would have all been iceland it's just like yeah. overwhelming mm -hmm. uh overwhelming uh variety that you see in iceland but the fact that we got canada scotland and kenya is um I'm sure they would have also used Africa because yeah. I know it's very connected to Africa. His first movie plays there and he was in the military service in Africa. It's, it's my first... understanding that he's a black filmmaker. Am I getting that? Yes, out? exactly. <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, yeah, he did a military service in, in colonial, uh, uh, I don't know. Cameroon, I think. Cameroon, yeah, exactly. And so his first movie, I don't know, did you see Black and White in Color Martin? I think that's yeah, very much up your yeah. alley. Yeah. And, and I know like he's still, he's, he said he's like still somebody who tries to travel every year and see different cultures. And I, I think like, you know, especially in Africa, he said like he's taught filmmaking there and it's, it's a place that he's, he's deeply in love. You can he's tell in love with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of fearlessness of how, when you have these experiences early in life that you travel and you meet other people and you live with other people, this is the filmmaker that needs to make this movie because you lose all fear of otherness of other people. And the people yeah. who are most afraid are the ones that are kept inside in their own culture. And I remember it just even in my own life, when I lived in Japan, I was a totally different person to where I'm now family father locked in and is what we discussed before Travis Bickle mindset I'm Archie Bunker <laughs> it's because I haven't traveled enough again and just being forced yeah. to encounter other people and not with your family on your own because yeah. when you're with your family or friends you you're even more out. protective you're yes, even yeah. you're you're so on task when you travel with your kids and and your your girlfriend and stuff yeah that it's it's just the plan is really like we got to get the fire we got to get dinner you know you really aren't exploring at all with it no, and you, and you don't feel and... unmoored yeah that's something great like about this movie too, just the start of this film you know oh. where it's establishing them in their cave you know with the fire that they're all dependent on and there's that great shot too of the the twins where one of them is staring forward one of them is in profile it looks like a diagram of like an early man that you would see in a museum or something these great shots but then this idea that you know uh they're uprooted from that you know like they're they're not just going to be like sitting around their cave and, you know, feeling cozy and everything. Like when that's taken away, even the, uh, the, uh, Accra, the, 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 the word for fire that they use, the Latin root is home, you know, that, that they're centered around this, this survival and the security that they are forced to go out and actually, you know, expand their, <laughs> not only their culture, but like expand their experiences, like is kind of the thrust and the romanticism of this entire movie is based on. And yeah. I appreciate that too that they, that that they film in Africa, that they film in Savo Park specifically, you know, like where they found remains of early man, remains of Lucy, yeah. things like that. Uh, even if you don't know that, I mean, the film there must have been amazing for them, obviously, just the, the all the cast and everything knowing it, it its feels history. primordial. It feels like, oh, yeah, this is where humans came from. You know, it, yeah, you can feel it you know when you watch it yeah somehow. and that's conveyed through uh the animals around not so much the saber tooth or the mammoth but the pelicans are really the primordial humans, yeah. right like mm. the fact that they are mingling with vultures and it's why i connect to robin and mary in those shots so much because we see the vultures the eyeball missing to the vulture that's it that's filmmaking that cinema i yeah. don't care about any other thing than seeing that because now we are connected the fact we talk about the workshop so much and why we're connected to it. the fact that they took went to the national 
National Museum and took a cast of a mammoth jaw. Yeah. If you put that in digital, you lose anything. And I don't see the mammoth jaw in the grass. It's probably lost the little skeletons <laughs> or something. But all of that getting you in the mindset of being in that world. And like John, like you said, that's the thing that ensures their survival, not bringing the fire back, bringing the sophisticated weapons, which I, I think there's there's a little thing that I feel that's missing because he, I know said everything we shot was really on film. We had no second left, but there's a tiny little time gap that we don't see them training with those weapons, how they take out the last sort of caveman yeah. of their own tribe. Yeah. All of a sudden they know how to handle it. And there, there's a there's a weird little obviously the, it doesn't it doesn't disturb you because they could have did these time jumps in the movie all over the place and we don't know how really how long they spent in that uh village and stuff and obviously he gets shown the secret of the fire so maybe there are more mysteries that they solve there but there's something i don't remember from the book in the book they kind of clubbed them to death and that's the, yeah. how it's resolved but it's an interesting addition yeah. that all of a sudden we get a long distance weapon added how sophisticated and we yeah. don't have to in like that, the, the military development, obviously warfare. This tribe now is really going to assert itself being able to hunt more, not only get the fire back, but now different food, the laughter, the interbreeding culture. And we, we are getting now a completely step up. And now we can see, oh, you can survive this ice age, right? Like you get different furs, you get different... Uh, so that's all done very satisfying. Well, and, you mentioned the high grasses okay. in Kenya, right? I mean, even shooting yeah. like low angles of that if you know kind of like they had a lot of anthropologists work on this film knowing that it's a theory a common theory that homo erectus like first stood up to look over the tall grasses of africa you know mm. that's another kind of a great thematic shot well, who said like, that who it, said that that's super interesting where's this from there's a soup i forget i see my brain is so scrambled but you're so right just the difference of growing up in a dense forest or seeing the horizon line that separation yeah. of being able to encounter yeah. the world like this or this and it's the difference between Rome and Schwarzwald, Germany. <laughs> like this, this is the Greece or, uh, you know, the Lascaux Caves. So, yeah. That, I forget where that's from. It's either in a movie uh, or I mean, literature, or, but it's precisely to these, that point. Uh, yeah. There are like so many different theories about why some civilizations advance and thrive and expound on themselves and why some, you know, stayed basically the same for the last uh 50,000 years, 80,000 years. Yeah, and know, it creates um, a different mythology and culture. And like we're all blood. the same, we're all the same species. Like you you talk to somebody from Papua New Guinea, they're as human as somebody from from Italy or from you know anywhere. Like we're all the same. And you, you know, you can take that going back into time where 80,000 years ago, uh, Homo sapien was basically like for all intents and purposes the same as they are today. Like all the things that matter anyway, same brain you know you could and that's it sorry yeah. just to interject because you're hitting that exact point the kind of pavement love fool this is where i feel that, that when he starts missing radon she leaves him and we see that whole this is the, the the section of the movie where we see all the modern tropes of what you're saying the the kind of we're all still the same we see a guy who's in love and his two friends haven't yeah. we all been through exactly that? <laughs> Them sort of waiting out to see the folly of his ways, and we ah, oh, why do we have to? When she first her? takes off, and he's like kicking dirt in her direction, and he's like, yeah. well, we don't need her anyway. And then like a couple minutes later, he's like, oh, I miss her. Like you can just tell it through his. I, we've his all been through this, and, either yeah. as the friends or the guy who's in love. But that joy, and that's a big part of the joy of this movie yeah. that we see in a primitive way 
reactions that we all still to this day feel. It's not all strange to us, like, oh, Avaz, like, yeah, okay, we yeah. all grew up with that. We don't need to, do. but the film is made up of, of I just identify as, as Namir and Ron Perlman because I had many friends that I lost <laughs> to women and, and I know how that feels. I'm like, I'm going to wait this out. Like, how yeah. long will they see this? And and then eventually, you know, like you said, when they get captured, it's just such a humorous, great edit in the film to where eventually the friend's like ah let's let's go find him because we can't live without yeah. him either he's our friend and then him already assimilating into the culture and why ron perlman is so hurt i mean by this betrayal it's, it's very, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it's a very like french romantic kind of idea that you know interacting with a woman it's a civilizing act like you know i mean if you if anyone listening ever wants to pick up another language like find a girlfriend who speaks that language that's the quickest yeah. way to learn you know and just be clara you know, the, um, <laughs> you know, the, like these, uh, I mean, Neanderthal, they were so similar to us. Uh, like I heard one anthropologist talking recently where she's like, um, like in the future, we might have to reclassify this where instead of thinking of ourselves as two distinct species, we might say, well, we were two subspecies of Homo erectus or something like that. You know, we were so, so similar, you know, and, uh, like probably if you could go back in time, you you would be surprised at how similar they were to us. But I love how this film explores this idea that like, you know, what's what's human and what's animal. It's not like a hard line. It's maybe a more subtle kind of matter of degrees. You know, you get these different types of humans in the film. And, uh, you know, this Neanderthal man, through interacting with her and through picking up the culture and through his experiences with Radon Chong's character, it's like he becomes, you know, he's, re he realizes he's capable of more. I mean, one of the best scenes I think in the film is the, uh, is the lovemaking scene, which is different than the, uh, Rape scene, <laughs> but uh, well, the rape scene know, with Ron Perman is the star. The, the, of the way it sets scene. it up, I know. Well, if, at first, he's like, "Well, you know, I, I think I want some of that," and then like uh, Everett McGill's character, it's like him asserting his dominance both over. Don't say that Chong, if you ever also, meet Ron Perlman, by the way. <laughs> over the, <laughs> you were the star of the, the rape scene. The, 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 the character, anyway. Um, you know, and like Ron Perlman's just like, like, okay, yeah, you're the boss. Kind of look on his face while uh, Everett McGill's. And, you know, this idea that, like, um, I mean, we were talking before recording, but, like, this idea that back then, you know, for Neanderthal, like, maybe, like, our ideas of consent and Well, sex but this and, is what know, we were talking about, is, <laughs> is like, these definitions at 80,000 years old, the idea we're of rape being a crime against consent is only about 40 years old. It begins as, like, a property crime in which the woman's body is the property being damaged, and then it gradually becomes a crime against chastity itself, which the state has a moral responsibility to enforce moral, to enforce morality, and only, you know, like, in the late 60s, early 70s, you start getting laws like marital rape and, and statutory rape laws sort of come into popularity the idea that rape is a violation of a woman's consent is very modern you know that it that's not really what it was about so even using words like rape and consent for these scenes is a little like and it would be sure so i guess but like what are we talking <laughs> as about far here? as, as like, far as do, you, know, do you ever but... say oh no that dog raped that other dog like it feels I mean, a little I've... like what are you talking about <laughs> i've seen some people you know? talk like that but i you know, the only I thing agree. it knows saying as during the as, commentary um, is my film's not very politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, what it the just film feels does, like it... ludicrous to use these definitions. Okay, I, yeah, yeah, sure. Because, but uh, I'm, I'm just saying, like, as far as distinguishing it from the the lovemaking scene, which is 
yeah. is handled completely differently where, you know, listen, she... listen, Martin, rape is when it's doggy style. Love is when it's missionary <laughs> position. Don't you? That's what I learned from this movie. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, oh, she, she wants to look in his eyes. It's love. It's, it's, you know, this idea that like sex doesn't just have to be for purely animal sexual reasons. gratification animal reasons that they're you know uh, uh, yeah and like it's a french man that there it's be, a french uh... man like we don't have this in europe like you know <laughs> there's this the polanski comes up in many ways here i don't want to get into it but, I, I shouldn't have but, even brought up this yeah, exactly. what have i done but but, but uh the, the 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 interesting thing is also that a movie without those scenes would be dishonest, completely yeah. dishonest. You yeah. cannot make a caveman movie I mean, without rape. Earlier, you're talking about like how you know <laughs> yeah. if it just treated like Everett McGill as this like soulful modern kind of character the whole way through, it wouldn't work. Like you do need these scenes to remind you that like he's in he's a caveman, he's a Neanderthal. You know, yeah. he's yeah. And the olive branch, so to speak, is the dick biting, sort of, because <laughs> in the book, there's no such thing. But to, to, as the film needs to, the fact that she's even interested as a as a, a evolved woman is to be able to treat his wounds, you know? So she pay, makes the pace and that this is the hilarious moment, but it's also their way of approaching them because as a caveman group, they don't feel particularly attracted to her. I mean, Ron Perlman makes the first move because he smells her readiness sort of to speak and he may he, he scooches over to her closer and closer he's, which is hilarious which also i had friends like that so we can relate to exactly yeah. that, that behavior we, john cribs just told me that exact story about a friend of ours in college who oh, and yeah, i was we, watching it and i was like that's that's that story John just told me. Exactly. We all observed that behavior growing up in the 80s, at least. I don't know about now. But in, and and then him basically raping her, not because he's particularly interested in her, but just his dominance in the group. Hey, this is I saved her. I'm the chief here. OK. And then yeah. he lets her go. He's not interested beyond that after her. In fact, like you said, he kicks dirt by fuck off i don't care about yeah. you and then realizing sort of and this is where the romance kicks in that oh that was nice in the nest and the fact that the nest that they build is already yeah. a symbol of it's a different camp so their camps evolve yeah. too a little bit and sort of it's all more of a um uh uh which by the way i don't let's not forget the throne of blood uh shot talking about kurosawa and then both in the love making scene we see the overhanging cliff and them all together. oh yeah it's exactly from throne of blood where mifune is with the princess no, no sex, mm -hmm. obviously, and the two peasants sort of hunching over, and their hilarity in the caveman is obviously Ron Perlman and trying like, oh, maybe I can have sex with him. It's like, well, they're over there. But all these caveman thoughts feel really honest. It, it feels yeah. absolutely authentic. We all had those. Let's be honest. Like you said. We well, it is. Had... It's the things that, especially with the her being pregnant at the end and the intensity you feel as a parent towards a child and, and having a child with a woman and all of that, the things that are, are most, that we think of as making us most human defining human characteristics being a man to a woman being a parent to a child are also our most animal things and i think that this right. movie has to be realistic about the animalistic qualities the the sort of pre-civilized pre-moral qualities of all that stuff of that that uh, a movie that takes place before moralism is a concept before morality is a concept you 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 can't shy away from that it becomes absurd i think that it yeah. goes just right up to the edge 
of romance and sort of a Frenchman's romanticizing of <laughs> woman as the civilizing influence and the beating heart of, you know, all that's, you know, elegant and, and humane in humanity um, and doesn't cross over, but it presses its face right up against that window pane as hard as it can. But I right. think that I it, think it, that... it has to be realistic about the connection between the things we think of as being most animal in us and most humane and 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 developed and human in us too. And what keeps us from the super days of like molesting and then even the actress being the victim in this role, I think is that in her village, she's not the beauty ideal. That helps yeah. a lot. And mm -hmm. the fact that she later, which is also not in the book, that, you know, the, the terror of him actually not yeah. being able to make fire is hilarious. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. He gives a big speech like, oh, and he's the new chief. <laughs> and him sweating under that wig and just the terror of him not being able to reduce the fire. You know, the yeah. man completely, we've all been there. God, like, no, I definitely <laughs> those flashbacks to being in Boy Scouts, to yeah. being in to being in Cub Scouts and trying to do the the drag fire and being like this is literally impossible. No one has ever yes. fucking done this. I don't believe it. It's that feeling. It was a complete flashbacks to being, you know, 10 years old and, and being an Indian Scouts or whatever and being like, this is fucking impossible. Who told me you can make fire this <laughs> exactly. way? This is a load of bullshit. It's never happened once. And, and her watched it on YouTube, therefore I can do it. That's, that's yeah. how it works, right? But her sort of gently bringing her hand into it. The, yeah. the yeah. shot is so great too, where her hand comes into frame and just kind of takes charge and he... The way he looks at her and kind of yeah. gives way to her. I, I really love just how that's framed and how that's they're such a cute couple. They are. They're such a cute couple. <laughs> Which is a very also let's see uh, black and white in color. There's a couple of shots that connect these two movies. There's one of a uh, impudent French guy, uh, colonial officer lying in bed and this beautiful prostitute, and she's kind of peeking under the blanket. She's like, "Huh, it's not working." And he's like, "Well, I try. I just want to sleep and stuff." And there's very much this impudency of him trying to produce fire desperately, and her hands coming in. It's that making up of that almost like the love making scene where they go like, "Okay, no, 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 just calm down and let me handle this. It will work." And him just giving up and then obviously that that's also for us to make sense that the, the women would accept her into a tribe yeah. she's now obviously a status above yeah. just him bringing his girlfriend or yeah something, you know and it, it's all resolved and it makes great sense and another shot that's i don't know if you guys remember from watching in black and white and color that sticks with you is there's this great scene that feels very Herzog in this great theater set where the, the the church is buying all the African art up and then throwing it on the fire in exchange yeah, yeah. for like relic statues. And there's one shot of a mask burning in the fire of this beautiful artifact of African culture, but it's thrown to the pits for Christianity. That exchange is very much, if you want to have one image that connects to the quest for fire, you really see the auteur in the film, like, what are my interests in this anthropological way of making something symbolic through filmmaking? Whether or not these scenes happen like this, it's it's a beautiful symbol for this kind of rape of a culture or asserting a dominance. Another traveling of culture across continents and then how how does how does africa develop in the future you know under colonial rule very interesting i find the, the connections in mm -hmm. those two two films uh as, as the greater seems under underlying this uh, film it's it's interesting one thing that also thinking about that sort of that exact comparison you're making one thing that that strikes me about this movie and again when i talk about i feel like science is no longer interested in the things 
I'm interested in this, just the primal, you watch it and it turns on and you sit up like an eight year old and you're like, yeah, where did civilization come from? How the fuck did we move out of being gorillas into being humans? How did we ever build churches? And it does have that sort of anthropological drive that I feel like is very human and understandable that if you talk to like academia is just overrun with people nowadays who would respond to that by saying like, oh, oh, we are civilized. Mm, yeah, really? This is civilization. And you're like, yes, yes, because, it's fucking again, incredible. What happened? Because you know? again, in Utah, oh, really? We're just... not. It's, look how we treat homeless people. And you're like, yeah, because exactly. other people have houses and massive buildings and skyscrapers they live in. And because anyway. again, it's it's you tapped into it a sentence ago. You're just talking about how you're making fire as a Boy Scout. In our generation of just boyhood, it was very clear that you picked up a dinosaur book and then you made a fire and you shot a bow and arrow and you built yeah. a treehouse. Oh my god! And, 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 it's, it's and then you made your own bow and arrow that exactly. sucked and didn't work, and you went and read another book. Get it? Yeah. How you have to cut it at the right age and the, the tree it would be flexible if you, you cut find it an arrowhead walking <laughs> through a field. And uh, well, this is very America to find an arrow. Had walked yeah, we found the Nazi like, helmets, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and they're <laughs> like, I gotta, I gotta make my own arrow now. That's what you do but when you find an arrowhead. Is- you and know? why we connect to the haptic qualities of filmmaking, why it connects us to the outside, the hiking tours with my grandfather, walking around in this dinosaur, uh, in Switzerland and prehistoric times. But it's all actualized into our lives. Whereas why now, why it's so in the academia, it's so abstract through this digital uh, tools that we are interacting daily with, with a lot of positive things. But what it has definitely removed us from this type of filmmaking, this type of understanding of anthropology, history, curiosity about a boyhood things. You need a knife. When I grew up, all the books, my childhood books had, you need a a, a knife in your pocket, a string, uh, some, uh, you know, a compass. A compass, compass. compass. And that's how you would leave the house. Like, yeah, this is just per- paraphernalia of boyhood. Oh, yeah. Sort of Go outside and play. That was it. Go outside and play. Opening. And you're in the woods for 12 hours till, yeah, grand, the, the, till mom's on the back porch yelling your name to come in for dinner. I mean, exactly. I remember encapsulated, when, um... sorry, encapsulated in that opening shot of To Kill a Mockingbird. That's it. Yeah. Well, when I was writing about Apocalypto, I remember, Chris, you had this idea that we were talking about how sometimes scientists struggle to interpret certain things. And it's like, ah, I guess this had ceremonial significance, question mark. And you had this idea of um, it would be interesting to bring in a bunch of actors, a group of actors, and have them live in one of these sites. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, I, I... I don't know like what you could necessarily extract from that scientifically, but it would be interesting to see people play with these things and work with these things and try to figure out what, what they are in a tactile way that I, I always thought about that after you mentioned it as, as maybe an interesting idea of how to get a sense of just how people lived because it's, it's hard when you're trying to, well, I'm like- trying to uh, piece together the way people live when it's people without imagination but that's but that's to, uh, why i think that's exactly why kurosawa had them live in that village in redbeard yeah. for a year before he filmed is i think he wanted to like we built this set let's see how it's actually lived in and everybody's going to be living here and so when we go to film they're not going to be doing like the first dumb idea that comes to their mind on camera they're going to be doing it like i've been fucking living here for a year and all of these materials that look mysterious and you can have one scientist come around and say well that would have been used 
for this and this would have been run in that way. Well, let's have 30 people live here in this village for a year yep. and we'll actually see how it goes. I probably just stole that idea from like, we should do what Kurosawa did. But I, he's I feel a like G this film, this film also kind idea. of does that where, you know, they, they talk about how long the process was of uh, working with the actors physically and getting them into into that mindset. And there are so many moments watching this film where I feel like there's, a, again, that authenticity, like uh, when the fire is going out after it got dunked at the very beginning of the film and like Everett McGill, when he's putting his hair in that little ember to try to like feed yeah, it somehow, just get it going. And like the desperation there, like, I, you know, I don't know if that was um, improv or, you know, if that was in the script well, or what, but just like, you know, a little detail like that, like putting his hair in the ember, it feels like, you feel his desperation. You feel like just just anything. I hope anything can bring this fire back and make it work. And well, there are well, lots again, of that, moments like that. Yeah. That composition is completely informed by the tradition of European master painting from, from Holland over to Italy, Caravaggio. The group dynamics, as you said, living yeah. together in the group, then all of them coming in over Christ, lighting the embers. There's so many shots, the way it's lit, the way of the wonder of, you know, uh, uh, of the doubter when he points to Christ's wound. We can yeah. directly link this. And Arnaud doesn't need that. This is part of his DNA. You grew up with this. And so when you compose the shots, it's so, like, I always like to look, especially when you know a film so well, you look outside the frame, what everybody's doing. And like you said, Martin, everyone is doing something so interesting and filling their role. Only like you said, when you lived in that village, when you trade, when you're actually out in Scotland, when it's actually fucking freezing, when you're losing light, when Arno yep. himself strips down and performs it for you. And then we get this one shot and the terror of the light going out is it's it's magnificent. And it's the entire group. And yet just watch that isolated shot of just the interaction and you will feel everything we just discussed from everyone involved, the women, every the littlest background, everyone knows their role, their tribe in the village it's 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 part of the joy of watching this over and over again is beyond the story you just get to enjoy the side performances is only what achieved you know i grew up in the theater and my father used to uh, just living on rehearsal stages and drawing and whatever and rejecting that whole world but what i i took from that whole thing was that that building over months a community and then after the show's over, you never speak to them again. You never yeah. see them again, but you live super close and it develops its dynamics within seconds, especially with actor. Who, who's the dominant? Who's the yeah. joker? Who's the sexy girl? Who everybody wants to bang? Who actually sleeps with each other? And it's Who's the Ron Perlman of the group? Oh yeah, there's always <laughs> Ron Perlman of the group. I, I feel, yeah, I, I grew up, I, many mornings when I used to go to school to wake up my parents because they'd still be sleeping because they were out late nights and avant-garde and all the stuff. And I'm like, hey, I actually got to go to school. There was some actor drama. <laughs> In the, in the kitchen still and, and many a Ron Perlman just, like, <laughs> I was like hey where's my 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 backpack have you seen my backpack oh you don't know what I think about theater <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe that's why I connected to this movie so much but yeah uh, I yeah I feel very um, but like what you said it's not interesting when it's uninteresting people doing the thing yeah. we had many experiments like this in sort of big brother television or survival shows where yeah. it's just a bodybuilder and some dunce oh, yeah. model like, <laughs> the, uh, naked and afraid of these types of things yeah exactly it's uh, it's good trash tv if you get people deprived of sleep and hungry because they just like Oh, yeah, I love that other, show. What but... was it? Alone or whatever? Alone, alone's a little oh, yeah. bit better than Naked and Afraid, yeah. I, well, I I'm sure, sure getting frostbite and almost losing your feet like uh, Ron Perlman and other actors did probably put them <laughs> in that similar kind of mindset. In this yeah. Film. 
like, yeah. you, again, like talking about like that. the uh, you know, locations the like Bruce Peninsula, Wyerton, like, you know, I've, I've been there. Like I, I've been yeah. in the woods there. I probably right around where those, I actually, I, I know I've been in one of the spots where they filmed, but like, yeah, it, it gets really cold. <laughs> like just thinking about yeah. doing that, like bare assed. Uh, but, you know, I think it comes through in the performances. I mean, you know even if it's if it's not performing like i know kind of talks about like yeah they were really that cold isn't that great <laughs> for some of those shots where they're all like huddled together in this group but um well but again that's also something everything i believe in the herzogian idea that everything off of camera ends up affecting what ends up on the celluloid and again with digital you you people you think of something like fucking black widow where they're supposed to be in antarctica or some frozen place for half of it and oh. they don't they don't look I, cold and they're never going to look digital, cold and they're never going to has yeah. like ruined cold scenes in movies just, for me because it's like very obviously like actors at room temperature with the digitally added breath and you can do it so easily now like but the way people, people don't have to be cold anymore yeah people hold their bodies different when they're cold we were I, just well, john and i were just watching, talking about uh, basket case when Dwayne oh. is running naked <laughs> running naked at the end and yeah. you can see he's fucking cold because of the way he holds his I, body I was gonna say the exorcist yeah. i just watched recently same thing at the end when, like you can tell they're really cold at the at the exorcism scene but uh no i i think it's absolutely true i mean sometimes like there are certain situations where you're like ah, like it's a it's a movie it's a fucking illusion if it it doesn't matter if it's falling apart outside the frame as long as it looks good in the frame. But that, that's good, what you but, said. You know. it. It's it's an illusion, which is magic. And when we remove the magic, that means yeah. the cinematographer has to dip a piece of celluloid just long enough into yeah. a chemical bath to give you that sunset look. A second, millisecond yeah. later, it's a different movie. If we remove those experts, those masters, if we remove that expertise of getting the last shot before the sun goes down, then the magic is gone. And we all talk too much about scripts and themes yeah. and representation. The magic is gone. Just the fucking magic. I don't understand. If I was ever... I, it's so simple to make this. I, I Again, I get down to it. Just... Just like, you know, choose a master composer and get a master cinematographer and shoot it at dusk and you will have a five minute movie that's mm. breathtaking and projected yeah. really big. And then you realize what you just said. It's so impossible now. It's impossible. Yeah. Where are those guys? Nobody would finance it. It's gone. That used to be part of our cultural landscape that was discussed and expected as for us as humanity. We produce these type of movies. That's part of just like the symphony orchestra exists or the theater or the why you love living in New York, Chris. Uh, why, yeah. why we always talk about that. But that's gone it's gone. but it's also and it's, it's also like... interesting i don't want to completely throw out the script because i feel like if you see that um the the magic robot kid movie with the really generic title that was just out uh you know what i'm talking about he's like the robot kid who's going to say girl who's going to save the oh. the civilization in the human and robot war it's like a star wars knockoff god damn it all three of you know this movie i'm talking what, what, gareth what, edwards what, um gareth uh, edwards oh i haven't the, seen uh, it but um uh, it's yeah. a little girl, the creator. Yes, it's, it's the creator. creator. Okay, <laughs> that title, movie yeah. filmed on location in a lot of places and tried yes. to use as much practical effects as possible. And I think what that movie reveals 
to just the other flip side of it, Tony, is if you try and make one of these generic blockbuster scripts and you situate it in the real world, how completely hollow, empty, and pointless <laughs> the stories are on top of it. Yep. Those movies are bad. The new uh, Star Wars movies are bad, not just because they're digital vomit that doesn't oh, yeah. look good and has no personality. It's that, also but, because they're that kind of movie, too. Exactly. But, but what they're, makes... They're... Quest for Fire special is how good it is of a script in terms of scenes. It understands the art of the scene, which is completely lost, which is a five minute chunk of your movie that has its entire own narrative within that scene, right? And leads into other scenes and it takes its time to get through it. Movies nowadays, every scene is well, 30 seconds I, long uh, and has no story in it. One of my pet peeves now too is like when people talk about like, I need to spend more time with the character to develop them. And it's like, okay, how do you develop them? Just spend more time with them. Yeah. Just, just physically look at them for yeah. an extra five minutes. Yeah, maybe maybe he like walks over to a right. bookshelf. Maybe he has <laughs> a like, sandwich. Like it does nothing <laughs> yeah. to to tell you who that character is, but people think like literally just spending time more, watching this character yeah. will make you. But but Quest for them Fire is such an incredible <laughs> collection of scenes. There's so yes. many right. scenes that you're like, oh, that scene is fucking awesome, and that scene is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's a and that scene pearls, is fucking right? some, yeah. And they're they're well, like they, emotional they moments. They don't have to. Well, like they don't have to hammer it too hard either like yeah i mean casting twins the el cadi twins and then one dies early on and the way he kind of slips away and like you just kind of carry that in the back of your head when you're watching this character for the rest of the film like it yeah it tells you something about you know his his place in this group his you know probably the loneliness he's experiencing even if he can't articulate it or you know like what's even feeling you know you think about these things like the whole way through the movie or if you don't consciously think about them, they sort of inform the way that you look at these characters. They're, you know, the, these characters are well-developed, even though they're grunting Neanderthals, you know? Well, they hired uh, a master screenwriter as well with yeah. Gerard Brock. Brock you know? yeah. It's, you know, all this, all these craftsmen, you know, are and again, extinct they, these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I feel something else that, just to go back into the, why, because even like Gareth Edwards, what's it called? Uh, the other Star Wars, the, the there was oh, shot yeah. in Iceland, right? Rogue, the, the, Rogue shot, yeah. the shots that work are really filmed in Iceland in front yeah. of, so it's almost like, wow, this is full circle. And why the, those movies, oh, that, that's a little bit better example, but let's just, I haven't seen it. Yeah, Rogue One so is I, actually interesting film. Yeah, I think like of all the new Star Wars movies. Yeah. Yeah. Of all those. But if we go back to the creator again, I've no, I've no knowledge of it besides a poster and feel where, where that falls apart where, where because there's another aspect that nobody ever talks about and it's called taste and that, yeah. informs, <laughs> that informs like your decisions you can shoot all in the real world and make this all real but if your main character has a lance and a jetpack and cornrows and like you i see you have no taste you're awful at this picking what's cool and he's a samurai <laughs> cowboy and like you suck you just feel all the problems. It's in the story, but if I see this, I'm like, this movie, I'm not making this movie. And so beyond like, even this way, this movie succeeds in the kind of drastic condensation of these commercial themes. You need to bring that scene home as the perfect when he's picking up the 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 the, the fruit or the, the cucumbers, the zucchini, and then having him drop them. And this cut it's and there are many scenes like this that can be studied in this concise, like you said, concise, just under 
Cinema is its own art form. It has no relation to the script, the poster, to the painting, yeah. the comic book. That's just just cinema rules. And yeah. that has to be your number one on your list is cinema decides, right? right? If the shot's yeah. Scotland this way, if the shot's Kenya this way, it doesn't matter. If it cuts like this, that's cinema. And so, uh, and that's the extraordinary justification for that art form. It has to be because this is why we still need it. And we still need it in physical form. We still need it in film. And we still need it in um now when it gets the interesting question is when somebody like um again i haven't seen any new films but somebody like uh what's it oppenheimer now that yeah. gets oh, yeah. to this fetish of like it's in 70 millimeter and you're like eh, whatever i yeah. just saw it dcp because and then i felt good about it because everyone i know who saw it in 70 millimeter were like oh yeah they had to stop halfway through because the projection was <laughs> messing up and i'm like i saw it digital looked great <laughs> no complaints <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, when that becomes your only, like, it, it, yeah. it's where it, it's obviously. Yeah, the fetish, fetishizing yeah. the things of cinema is equally destructive to fetishize. Right. We're going to shoot it's it. It's a seven minute argument yeah. where yeah. you two, I mean, Martin and you, you're both expert as my only people I want to listen to in this entire idiotic discussion is, <laughs> is, is this, is this where we are in a losing situation on both ends. If we fa if we defend Scorsese, we're the most basic bitches in history. But if we go, <laughs> he's obviously made Taxi Driver and fucking King of Comedy. The yeah. Raging Bull. There, there's no, un he's untouchable, but he's also made garbage like for, forever <laughs> now. And so the people who defend him are just as bad as the people who- Well, that's, a, that's the thing that's crazy on Twitter is that right. I always want to say to the people defending him is like, he's obviously brilliant I, it's not to disparage him you guys are making the worst argument for him i have ever right. fucking heard his movies are simple-minded morality plays in which bad guys are punished and good guys are good like what the fuck are you talking about exactly. that you watch goodfellas to know that he gets punished at the end like what did you think that's what art is is that wolf of wall street it's not actually misogynistic or a thorny thing because he, it's obviously you're supposed to think he's a bad guy and he gets punished at the end it's like that's what you think movies are this is what you <laughs> think morality is this is what and, you think art is you're making you're you're not doing them a favor zip it guys <laughs> it's so destructive and the dumbest repetitive i think where why we even nobody talks about quest of fire but art, art is fucking... art is where there's a bad guy who gets punished at the end that's what yeah. art is and scorsese i just, I just, that. I just watched the bad seed last night where they tack <laughs> on that ending where she gets hit by lightning at the end <laughs> most ridiculous thing i've ever seen uh, i don't know if i like I don't really believe in deserves like as a as a literary concept. I was yeah. thinking like you know whenever it's like oh well that character really they they, they didn't deserve that or they deserve this I'm like oh, yeah. shit just happens. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what Quest for Fire being pretty moral. One of the things that's remarkable yeah. about it is it avoids like any of these guys are villains. You know yeah. maybe the cannibals yeah. a little bit, but it's it's really pre moral. Hey, they're just and surviving. They're <laughs> In a very conscious way, yeah. as this is what behavior is. This is, it's pre-moral the way an animal film, like you're talking about, Tony, is where like, is the cheetah the bad guy when he's like at the watering hole and decides I got to go for that Ibex? You know, is the Ibex the victim? We don't think of it that way, unless it's a manipulative, like, you know, Discovery Channel documentary I mean, that, that like plays the scary music. That's a whole other issue. to a like face the, of the um, Ibex being like, oh no, with a word the balloon. The of, you know? of like how we look at 
the environment and nature and like this that's movie's a whole so other careful kind of to eschew it. The, this yeah. movie's so careful to eschew it. This movie's so careful to to consider them as animals in a pre-moral state and sort of like the emergence of morality a little bit. I think that's why it needs the moments with like the the sex scenes that test our sense of morality and the yeah. cannibalism scenes and the sort of humiliation scenes, right? Where they when they first capture him and they're humiliating him and sort of having a joke at his expense there's something to a moral code about that you're talking about the development of humor as being an evolutionary step and a cultural evolutionary step well humor is also inflicted on people to humiliate them too their humor is a double-edged sword in that way it's used to have a laugh at somebody's fucking expense which we all know as human beings wounds us more than getting our you know fucking arm cut off you know humor yeah. you know humor can can wound That's us more than a rock man. dropped on our head that can make us laugh you know it can can soothe us. That's Sorry. why that look of Ron Perlman, the the, the betrayal yeah. of him all of a sudden assimilating with that <laughs> shitty makeup and, yeah. and, just and you know you're not real. You're faking it. You're not part of them. Why yeah. are you making fun of me? You're me, you're from me. We all been through this. Up no, exactly. Now, it's like when you have a friend a cool in high jacket. school. Yeah, exactly. yeah. He shows up and he's like, "Oh, you're a punk now. Just you woke over this weekend. You woke up and you're and you're a punk now. Exactly. And you got your screeching weasel leather jacket on and your fucking corn <laughs> t-shirt and you're a punk rock kid. No, and, I got. And, that's completely real that's totally real everett yeah exactly and and, and besides precisely getting the the first rape by the river where he sort of like you know it's showing like the them young the, guy trying to get you know nobody's looking i'm, I'm gonna go and get mine yeah and the, yeah and this is part of he feels like the filming let's get this out of yeah. the way let's not build this in the beautiful people in the cave yeah. and then the the savage monkeys come and but like it's, it's not even it's it's no, not even just, lurid either. It's just it's sort of a matter of fact. But it feels uh, very important to put it up yeah. front right away yeah. because you could yeah. build this all into the symphony of the early dawn and yeah. like da, da, and get too bombastic about it all when it's really, we all know the reality. That's your kind of wink to history. Okay, this is neither this nor the anthroposophical buildup of the exhibition in the Natural History Museum. This is really like, oh, over there, she is a naked ass. She's washing clothes. Yeah. He starts fucking her from behind. But at the same moment, the attack happens, which is also... Yeah something that feels really historic because yeah. we all know all those gunslingers been shot on the toilet just yeah. like they're sitting on the well I also thought west. of the uh, the of uh, the primates though you know primates are very famous for loving to wait until their opponent is starting yeah. to have sex and then ripping right. their testicles off yeah this is something primates fucking love to do vulnerability yeah and and that that's really part of it but it's also it sort of makes you think about well where does morality come from it comes from these women don't fucking like this Right. <laughs> so this is why we stopped doing it that way. You know, Ray Jong Chong has some advice for you about how to make sweet love to her, you know, and that you're going to and you're going to listen. And so morality develops out of that as well. It's when you talk about where does morality come from? It comes from stop doing things that are annoying to people in part yeah. two, that this is and part then, of how moral systems develop is like, I don't like that. Stop doing it. We as a culture agree. Stop doing it. And if you don't do it, what happens? We cut your hand off. We throw you out of the tribe. We cut your head off. You know, that's where morality comes from. 
And it's interesting to see her, the morality in her sort of sophisticated uh, village where they use him as the, the stud to, to impregnate or to mate with all <laughs> yeah. these women. She's hurt. She's crying at night yep. because yeah. she is nobody in that village, but he doesn't care. He's like, do this. And they're whipping mm -hmm. their, their stakes. No, he's he's, like, he's okay, having an awesome time. Like he's yeah, just chowing down. There's a naked yeah, lady beside him. He's, he's having yeah, the time of his it's life. It's beyond awesome. That's where he's like caveman. He's like, I guess like you gave me this uh, and yeah. had leaves around me with this like a thorn. Yeah. He looks so silly and is like obviously now he's the elder he is in a and he's the guest of honor but yeah he looks so silly drinking but there's also something mustache. again the humiliation he's the guest of honor and he's being right. made fun of it's like that story yeah. i always think about they were going to make a movie about it at one point of the first black samurai right there was this guy oh, yeah. who was from yeah. africa yeah. and it, the story if you look into it he was very very tall and the um I'm not sure it was the emperor, whoever he belonged to, whoever he was a samurai under, he was like a sideshow. He was like a look at this huge guy I have. And it was closer to being like, he's this valued warrior that I've given this a great honor to, to become a samurai and more like Caligula making his horse a fucking senator. It's Absolutely. like, I'm in charge. And so that humiliation, I think that 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 Everett McGill's character has the same humiliation in this of like, you're the stud that everybody loves. You're also our joke that we're throwing coins at to dance. We're knocking I, little sticks on the ground. I yeah. lived in Japan. Nothing has changed. I I was sort of the guest of honor, but you're not, people from Hokkaido are monkeys. Even Japanese people are monkeys to 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 people from Honshu. Then yeah. nothing changed. That's if we're really honest at this in a, a society that can be honest about this humor and this thing is yeah. a much healthier place than us always constructing this well-meaning horrific construct yeah. right like it, 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 it's it's all the ufc fighters that went and fought early tournaments in japan mm -hmm. they were sideshow they were like the yeah. biggest blackest guy and you get women to mate with this happened yeah. this is this is not fiction this is yeah completely how and there's a humiliation to it that yeah. pretends to be a veneration right and i think that that's again this is like where does civilization where does morality come from what is the defining characteristics of that stuff i think is really interesting about the film i do want to angle us away from controversial sure. subjects at exactly. this point yeah exactly if even if you're talking about like i mean genocide committed from one ethnic group against another yeah it, it, like that's we're all the same species think about like what it was like back when there were like other kinds of humans like shit look at that thing's skull i'm gonna murder it because it makes me uncomfortable i'm yeah. gonna murder every last one of them in this entire valley i don't care if they're aggressive or not i'm gonna kill them because yeah. they're different but they're too close to what i am yeah you know because I, I, like you have to think that like i mean there's places where they there's a famous site uh which used to be by the ocean where they found one of the last neanderthal settlements where they were living in the cave under a cliff face and there was a human settlement on top and they said like you know, they're not quite sure if it was contemporaneous, but it seems like the humans really just pushed the Neanderthals out to the ocean. And it's like, just get out of Europe, just die. Yeah. Stop existing, you know, like there's that kind of feat. That's why it's important that the evolved tribe Healing. is not. I mean, there's also sites oh. where they find Neanderthal bones that had uh, cuts on them from humans. Like we were, well, like that, that you know, we might have eaten Neanderthals even. Yeah. But then also, you know, we've got Neanderthal DNA in us, which means like, you know, there had to be some kind of level of intimacy and it's it's hard to kind of figure well, that's out exactly. again this movie the question yeah. of when does cannibalism become an immoral thing to do 
when do we decide that? How do we decide that cannibalism is an immoral thing to do? Yeah. Uh, lots of animals will eat their young even, you know, and that it's an animalistic thing to cannibalize your own species. And how do we make that decision? Where does that decision come from? And I think this movie is genuinely interested in those questions. Yeah. It's not themes yeah. that are farted well, into it accidentally or that, because like, they're supposed to have it. I think yeah. that's why they made this movie. Yeah. yeah, and also why it's so important that they make the advanced tribe not this magical uh, advanced society that's also nice and moral all of yeah. a sudden. They're brutal in, in this humiliation, right? It's just found another level. They're yeah. not like we are home. In fact, they're so not the solution that Radon leaves. You yeah. know, she, yeah. they have to find another model that works better maybe it's over here maybe it's over there but it cannot be in the people that just create now art now they're immediately moral and just yeah. and fair but exactly. what do they find besides the like a better way of survival the fire what they take from them is a better way to kill people it's actually a really scary scene where they come upon they're challenged by the other members of the tribe who want to take the fire and get the credit and everything uh because they wipe them out so easily you know yeah and, and they're just yeah, it's almost the one they stand right, there confused, yeah. like what's happening? Like we're yeah, all dying. That's right. Was, yeah. That's right. You're perfectly putting it. I've never seen it like until this viewing. The fact I always expected there to be a bigger battle in the end. I don't know whether this is in my mind or from the book or why, but I expected there are close up. I expected again to, to to now to be a close up battle where they kind of duel it out, like we expect from movies. The two uh, <laughs> yeah. henchmen are fighting it out, and something the more like the climax. Done, yeah, and the fact that it's done, like you said, from the distance. We want everything to be Quentin Durward. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the fact that it's done with technology at a distance removes us again from the bloodshed before, where we have to bash in the cannibal's head in this brutal way. Uh, and yeah, it's another step to where, oh, like what is what has driven the most development? Is it culture or is it actual war? You know, but I think driven... there's also there's yes. also this idea the end the, there's a sort of like condescending anthropological idea of that like being driven by like bloodlust and 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 voracious appetites for immoral things that we've tried to have civilization put a cap on as opposed to those things being completely intertwined and the desire for stronger tools even tools of destruction is a productive desire it's a survival desire it's it's the same desire as the desire for fire you know like it it it's both destructive and um, regenerative and productive. That's, you know? And it's perfectly summed up by Orson Welles in the kind of making of where he lights the fire in the band of match in the beginning. We've put it to a million tasks, some good, some, you know, like, yeah. it's fantastic, <laughs> and some evil and stuff. And he's summing it up very, very well. We see the rocket going into space. Yeah. And then we go back to the amber of the match of being able just to do that. Um, yeah, and it's all very... Uh, it's it's, it's it, so funny that Orson Welles also narrated the Dawn of Man sequence from History yes. of the World uh, Part One like a year <laughs> earlier. Like he just loves narrating cavemen. This guy. Well, at this point, you could just call him up for you know you want to have a good dinner, like you know, right? Uh, but it also feels that he gives this. At this point, you're the ambassador of like art and 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 what can cinema be? And I, I always feel he deserved it. He deserved yeah. that that making city commercials and stuff because we all still there's something about being the great orator and the and the custodian of you get to make it thomas million western and a yeah. commercial and aqua seltzer and also and be the voice these, of uh, yeah, omicron the living planet 
<laughs> and he's also the 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 narrator in the Vikings, like you said, and yeah, my other favorite movies. He tells he's great when you see a big scroll in the beginning and you need somebody, John Houston <laughs> or or you know Orson Welles to, to, to do that. Um, um guys, you know, I do not we know a place in the age of men. <laughs> I do not want to get, to go on infinitely. I love talking to you guys about yeah. this. Did you have any like wrapping up thoughts? Did you have anything else that you wanted to get to that we didn't didn't talk about? My only note that I have left that we have not discussed is uh crossing the river is a two-man job, guys. Surely you should have learned this by now. You take that flame over the river, it's a two-man job. I don't want you doing it solo anymore. Eco so would be he the first to tell you it. this. This is why you need Ika. She'd be like, we're going two man. It's a buddy system with the flame from here on out. That part's a perfect balance of humor and like, oh, fucking don't, <laughs> suspense. Just don't drop that fire, you bastard. Yeah. The way he kind of pushes it away, like it's the fire's fault. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like just so many. But like, I even mean earlier when Thomas. Why is this when, our fire guy? I mean, Who made when, this our fire guy? <laughs> when, when, you must say he was good at crawling into the crevices. He's good at true. caves, just yeah. not rivers. Yeah. yeah. Again, like really, it's just, it's so great to see like a portrayal of Caitlin where they're not hyper competent like like yeah. everything people were doing they were doing for the first time and you had to be smart and sharp just to survive and it's like it's scary to think that like hey if I make one little mistake it could be like the death of me and my tribe <laughs> but you know that I think was kind of the reality of of living back then but also that's I just why you're not a like, father you would experience that part. oh my god I like it like it like Chris I said, would never be able to relax again I would be no, constant that's the true horror you don't yeah. and there is and it's <laughs> and it is there is a crazy crazy primal fearing it's ridiculous how you feel of like fridges out eggs I gotta go get eggs give me my equipment <laughs> You know, you do feel like yeah. I'm walking across the street to the grocery store and you're like, where's my satchel and my hat? Like I'm on the quest for eggs. And, and will I return? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> Parker, you're in charge until I get back. You know, yeah. here's the shotgun. <laughs> Sit by the door. You know, and it's 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 the biggest underestimation of becoming a, a dad is that part. You always like. Oh, I can figure out the emotion into everything. Now I cry commercials, yeah. I cry football games. I cry oh my everything. God. Because everything becomes so dramatic. The shot at Jalen Hurts with his dad, the waterworks are on. It's just like, he's, he was a coach's son. It is true. And that this is, uh, everything becomes existential. Uh, my knees hurt, now I'll be hobbled and I can't work and my daughter will go hungry. And, and I think in these grandiose things all the time. And um, and I think, yeah, to maybe to wrap it up, it, it really is this quest of not only surviving now, giving her enough food, working with making stupid posters and covers, but also like transmitting the culture over. This is yeah. the fire mm -hmm. that we're reaching now to the next person. And uh, in today's world, it feels just as precarious as back then, like uh, yeah. with all this stuff floating around. Yeah, and I, I hope like... we didn't get too much into today's world, but that's just sort of the mood I was in now. And maybe I brought this in too much. It's, in, no, I think it's, I'm, it's so I'm, important I'm, because I'm like, glad again... you're in that mood, Tony, because now I'm just <laughs> next time my daughter wants to like sit there with her iPad, I'm going to knock it right out of her hands. <laughs> well, well like, it's funny. Me, they, it's... I don't do that. I don't do that. Because when the were yeah. the same and the only difference between the people who lived 80,000 years ago and the people today is that, you know, we have the shoulders of our ancestors to stand on. Yeah. You know, that's the one thing that kind of separates us over this big distance of time is somebody figured this out and they passed it on. So, you know, if you know something valuable, pass it on. Don't yeah. let it uh, don't let it disappear because that's how. You know, and 
share things, you know, cultural, I feel like not to, again, get politically incorrect, but like, you know, the idea of like cultural appropriation has become such a, such a, like a nasty, uh, bad thing that we all have to avoid. But like, it's insane. I reject I, it outright. Like, it's I, the I would dumbest thing in this, the fucking world. This conversation with you, if I couldn't appropriate things from culture, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's, the idea of exchanging culture and Martin, you're like, speaking English. I understand that your father is not an Englishman. Am I getting this correctly? <laughs> I'd correct. like you to stop appropriating our English. Just go stick to your own culture, Martin, whatever that may be. You know, you we own... should have done it all in grunts. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's so important. Like, because culture really, what culture is, it's just what we're surrounded by. You know, I think it's like yeah. bacterial culture. Like, it's just what you're surrounded by. And if you're surrounded, by more things and a variety of things, it's going to make you, I think, a. it's going to this movie let shows... you grow more and draw on more as a person, which I think is so important. And I think some people don't really understand, Cult like culture shouldn't be insular, you know. Cultural exchange is the most human thing in the world that you see in this movie, the cultural exchange between her tribe and his. The learning of fire is a cultural exchange. And it's so warm and so human and so neighborly. And the story I always tell about it is, you know, my dad, uh, who's a master Cajun cook, he's an incredible, incredible cook. He loves Cajun food. He moved next door to an Indian guy. And now that Indian guy knows how to make jambalaya. And my dad knows how to make matar paneer. And that's mm -hmm. like the fucking way life should be. And I'll tell you, that's awesome for me who gets to eat both now, you know, when I go visit my dad, you know, and there's no appropriation about it. That's like the most human thing there is to reach out and teach somebody how to make fire. And now it's ours, not yours and mine. It's ours. Culture exchange is literally evolution. <laughs> <laughs> it's human and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it's beautifully ended in this. And I, yeah, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and remember <laughs> the techniques of yesteryear and the craftsmen because yeah. it was a time when every chair was perfect and made by each Swiss Alpine mountain made a perfect chair and they're all different and they all are in itself perfect and, and yeah. have a have a connotation outside of, of, of the chair itself as a utilitarian object. They were art forms and, and beautifully painted uh wardrobes and now uh i don't think the tools are just tools and open up new possibilities i think we should be yeah. very careful in letting those things into our world and letting it spoil our sense of history in our eye and whether that's movie making or posters or music um i i i want to put up a little warning figure and maybe um uh, alongside with watching this film of the sort of we are all together also just appreciate the craft of making such a movie, which has again never been done again. Uh, and I feel that should teach us something that there are not a thousand great caveman movies. There's just one. No. <laughs> even even since then, like you know, there's there so few examples that I think are like even even decent. And I, I wish there were good ones. Like, I mean, um, there's a tiny snippet in Terrence Malick's Voyage of Time, which I I think is the best part of that movie. But it, again, it's just like a little sequence where you have the ascent from homo erectus to humans to building stuff to like it goes from the first cities to dubai like uh like a space odyssey cut or i i like alpha uh, actually but that's like a very young adult sort of movie it's not necessarily trying to do something uh as uh as thoughtful or as adult as this even though i think it's a, it's a very entertaining movie you know but like 
the, the pickings are slim, you know, and usually like, you know, caveman movie, it's an excuse to put like Raquel Welch in a bikini or, uh, you know, which is uh, the best intention. I know. I need genuine intention. The thinnest of excuses for that. Yeah. To sentimentate. Yeah. But, uh, oh yeah, that ties me up. Sorry, I was just always when I see Raquel Welch, I think of that Miami mayhem where she comes out of the pool with Frank Sinatra. It's a funny <laughs> last thing why we all see this movie now, and it's due to apparently Frank Sinatra. I don't know how hypocritical that is, but when one of the Fox executive women was sitting in the cinema next to Arno, and he was like, "The movie was out," but they were still, I don't know if we should even distribute this. Should we just scrap it? I don't know. Apparently, they showed it to Frank Sinatra, and he was like, "This is great," and so this is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Frank. Uh, uh, this is why we have Quest for Fire. Those guys, if, if Frank's always right. You listen to Frank. <laughs> <laughs> it plays, baby. <laughs> exactly. Uh, guys, thank you so much for doing this. This was a thank super fun much. episode. Yeah, this is a movie that was so fun to talk about. This is yeah. a and, wish uh, fulfillment, and especially with I feel so good talking about this film. I, I feel really lucky to be here with everybody. Yeah, I mean, to finally get an ch- excuse to see this film, fantastic. And to get this great message out of this uh, episode, pass on the fire, I think, you know, or else films like this will become the real cavemen, the real fossils that, you know, of society. It's a great message. And I, that's what I'm going to keep to heart for sure. Thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>